And we're live. Hello, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the great debate. You may have noticed we did something a little different today. We start with a song. I figured we'd uh, try to spice it up a little bit, make this more fun, more entertaining. Um, now, when I thought of this idea, I said it would be cool to put on one of my favorite songs, a favorite song every week. But then I realized that if I put a well-known song, the YouTube, this video will be demonetized by YouTube. But then I realized that's a great opportunity because this allows me to promote up and coming artists on each episode. So every single episode will feature a new song. This song was Around the World by Debbie James, King Phoenix, and Leila Malcos. Uh, I will put a link in the description to that song if anybody's interested. And if anybody has their own music that they want to uh, send in, send it to me as long as it's not horrible. We will feature it in one of the future episodes of The Great Debate. Um, let us know in the comments where you're from. We normally have viewers from all around the world, and it's a great pleasure to see that. For those who are here for the first time, a little bit about what The Great Debate is all about. This is an opportunity for people from all sides of, of the political spectrum, all sides of different conflicts, to come together and share their ideas. What makes this debate great is not that it's two people fighting against each other to defeat one another. Rather, it's two people working together to find common ground. That is what makes this debate great. Uh, the topic of today is the Israeli-Palestinian conf conflict. This is our main topic of conversation, but we have decided to expand into many other topics of conversation. So if there's a topic you'd like to see discussed on The Great Debate, please let us know. So without further ado, I am very, very Excited to welcome my two guests. On my bottom right, a crowd favorite and its fourth appearance on The Great Debate, Rudy Rachman, currently residing in Herzliya as a Jewish and Israel rights activist. He is considered a social media influencer with over 70,000 followers, creating educational viral videos aiming at shifting the global, ideological, and political conversations regarding the Jewish people in Israel. His work primarily focuses on, on empowering Jews and allies uniting sectors of Israeli society to craft a better reality for all living in the land while generating innovative ways to combat anti-Semitism. Welcome, Rudy. And Thank you for having me. on my bottom left, for his first appearance ever, Jason Damuni is a Christian Pal Palestinian currently residing in Australia. He started his company Trivium Energy, LTD, in 2014 and has been working as a young entrepreneur in the renewed renewable energy sector in Australia, Maldives, and Saudi Arabia. I'm a big fan of uh, green energy, so I support you, Jason. And Thank in his you. free time, he advocates for peaceful resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's great to have you both with us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. So today, the topics of conversation, we're gonna talk about narratives, normalization, and solutions. We're going to have time for questions in the middle and at the end. So guys, get your questions prepped. It's an interactive session. We're going to start by letting each guest share the narr their narrative. Now, I'm not going to say Jason shared the Palestinian narrative and Rudy shared the Israeli narrative because each individual has their own narrative. So this will be their own unique narrative. Um, Jason, we could start with you. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, look, um, as uh, I've, I've never been to um, Israel or, or that, so as a Palestinian in the diaspora, um, my, um, my heritage comes from Palestinian Christian heritage. My grandparents were from Haifa, and they both left in 1947 um, and to Lebanon, uh, where my mom uh, was um, born in Damour and my dad was born in Beirut. Um, and um, uh, they, uh, my mom managed to escape uh, the civil war in uh, Lebanon um, and made it to Melbourne. Uh, my dad had left um, uh, Lebanon uh, to Abu Dhabi to, for business um, before the civil war and uh, made it to America uh, during the civil war. And um, they uh, met at a wedding in Canada, funnily enough, and I was born in New York City um, and came to Australia when I was three months old. So, I mean, my, I've very much been removed away from the whole conflict um, and being sort of outside of it, living in a Western country, um, it sort of allows you to see both perspectives um, of the situation since um, Australia being a multicultural country. Um, uh, I went to university with Jewish friends. I have many Jewish friends and it allowed us to have this dialogue that I guess is not... Um, wouldn't be the same um, in the in in the Middle East. Um, so, I um, yeah, my um, uh, my studies on what has happened uh, so far um, and uh, what I see many Palestinian or prominent Palestinian voices say um, don't exactly reflect um, um, the opinions that I've come to form. Uh, in regards to this whole whole conflict. I mean, a lot of um, Palestinian activists will use triggering words like apartheid or colonization and everything, which often puts the other side on the defensive when what they're really trying to articulate um, with this whole conflict is that uh, the demographic replacement of, of, of the people that have left them stateless. And so as far as my understanding, relatives that are in the Middle East, even though they uh, were born in Lebanon, were still born as a Palestinian refugee in Lebanon. Um, like my mom, like my dad, um, like my cousins who were born in Lebanon. Um, and uh, so it's, uh, it's very interesting how the way, uh, the, the way that it sort of shaped out. Um, I mean, coming to sort of understand uh, the Jewish narrative um, and what I admire about the Jewish people um, is that they survived by uh, producing, you know, a number of high achievers that that many other culture cultures that have a challenging past can also learn from and look to reemulate to overcome trauma by being high achievers. So that's w what I would like to encourage, uh, you know. The, the Palestinians or people from a sort of uh, a minority with a challenging past to 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 reemulate. Um, in terms of in terms of my narrative, um, yeah, I mean, I've 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 looked at this conflict from the outside of it, and obviously, like having sort of ancestral connections to the to the land. I mean, it's for, from what I understand. 
the Christian Palestinian narrative. So we descend from uh, the ethnic Jews that weren't expelled by the Romans and survived, um, you know, for 1,400 years living alongside our uh, Muslim cousins and a minority of Jews as a multi-ethnic, multi-religious society. Um, so I do feel a sense of ancestral connection to the land, um, but um, n not to the extent where I would advocate for, you know, uh, uh, to demographically replace Jews because they have demographically replaced us. I think somebody has to call it to an end, and I'm glad that we're here together uh, to uh, to uh, communicate and um, to take the narrative to a new point where it's about reconciliation and how we can move forward. Because the this whole conflict is, is not about the land anymore. I mean, it's pretty clear who controls the land. Uh, it's a, now it's about uh, the people living in, in the land and their legal status. Um, and uh, and uh, that's, that's where we are in this point. I mean, the whole conflict, um, the whole debate right, around this has gone through a, several stages of evolution, you know? And um, it started in the 1880s, just 140 years ago, Jews living around the world, the Zionist movement, uh, were saying, we just want to go to Palestine. We want to live in Palestine. We want to settle in Palestine because that's where our ancestors came from. And we were being discriminated against in Europe. Now, if someone opposed that right of a Jew to purchase land in Haifa, that person was an anti-Semite. If someone at that time also said, okay, no, 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 you're just coming to live here, you're coming to become a country, and uh, if you become a country, then I, the Arab, becomes a minority. You'd call that person also an anti-Semite because there was no, that wasn't the goal of the movement at the time, as far as I understand it. Um, you know, stage two, after the, you know, Balfour Declaration gets made, then, you know, they uh, wanted a country and we're saying, oh, we only want a little bit of a country, you know, but everybody hates us. You know, the Arabs keep going to war against us. So we're going to take 78% of the country. Stage three, then the six-day war comes, uh, which is really the heart of the conflict, as well, from what I understand. Um, and now they're saying, okay, all the Arabs, all the Syrians, the Egyptians, they did this, they did that. And so the West Bank and Gaza fall under their control, fall under Israeli control. Um, and then they say, yep, yeah, we're going to put settlements in some parts of it, but we'll give most of it back. Um, you know, but it's, you know, the Arabs that don't want to negotiate. Um, and now it gets to a point where it's all been about the land. And the one thing that has been ignored all along are the people that live on the land um, and their and their rights and their like their legal status. You know, um, I think a lot of people have sort of uh, completely ignored the reality that uh, the land in which um, Zionists wanted to populate, you know, um, was not empty. And, uh, you know, as the enlightened, educated party supported by Western powers, it was their intellectual responsibility to come up with a plan, you know. But there were Arabic-speaking people that were living on the land at the time when European Jews wanted to come in and reclaim it. And even when 
yeah, um, you know, Europeans settled in America and Australia. They didn't always get it right, but eventually they gave rights to the people who were already living on the land. So that's that's my perspective. That's sort of my narrative of my understanding of of what has happened so far. But there's no use going back and debating history. We can only come together to find a way forward from this current situation. Thank you, Jason. Um, I just want to reinforce one point you made. So there's often resistance against people who are not directly involved in a conflict, contributing ideas. So often, you know, when we hear people in, a, in America tell, tell us how we need to deal with the conflict, there's resistance towards that. Or let's talk about a completely separate issue like, uh, you know, uh, the racial justice. When white people tell black people how they need to fight for their justice, they, you know, there's, there's resistance. And, and rightfully so. People, people who have most skin in the game don't feel like it's legitimate for outsiders to, to contribute ideas. Now, I, I, wanna, I wanna quickly emphasize the importance of having a diversity of opinions. Because Jason, as you mentioned, you've never been here to the land. No. But sometimes being slightly removed from a conflict gives you a perspective that you otherwise wouldn't have. So I would say that in order for us to achieve the best results and come up with the best ideas, we need to be open to hearing ideas for people who are directly involved in the conflict and people who are one step removed because they may have a perspective that those closer to the conflict do not have. As long as we all have the goal of elevating the well-being of the people on the land, then then it doesn't matter where, where the people providing perspective from is, it, it would be good to hear what they have to say because then we have the most diverse opinions and we could build the, the best solution from there. So that's how I see it. I just want to emphasize that. Um, Rudy, the floor is yours. So thank you, Adal, for hosting these amazing conversations. And they're not only with me, for those of you who only tune in because they see it through my social media, uh, Adal has many conversations with many different individuals on different topics. So I suggest you look into his other videos or his other future debates. Um, and thank you, Jason, for uh, participating in this conversation and being a part of the generation that is trying to reconnect the cousins, reconnect the brothers and sisters, the human beings, and for us to be able to transcend this conflict and to move forward. Um, I'm definitely going to share my narrative and then maybe touch on a few of the points that you brought up. Um, yeah. And I do want to suggest Adal, uh, a young upcoming artist, his name is Young Zion, uh, just so happened to be my little brother, uh, really raps with meaning, uh, there's like a really, some, a lot of spirituality, a lot of meaning, a lot of uh, making the world a, a better place. So he's on Spotify um, and you can look him up on Instagram as well. Uh, so hopefully you play that next. Awesome. Anyways, in terms, in terms of my narrative, uh, I am a Jew, a Hebrew, an Israelite. I'm a descendant of a native nation population from the land of Judea, Israel. Uh, I was born in displacement because my ancestors were displaced by the Romans. Uh, part of my family had to flee uh, throughout Europe, and part of my family had to flee from Spain to Morocco, and then went back into France. I personally was born in France, uh, left at the age of three, moved to Israel, age of five, moved to Miami, grew up most of my life in the diaspora. And growing up, I always had these different label labels being put on me. Are you French? Are you American? Are you Jewish? Are you Israeli? And I realized that when I identify, my identity is way greater than just my physical lifetime or experiences or birthplace. 
it really meant what collective you come from, what history you have, what values and culture and language and aspirations and even struggles that comes along with being part of a greater collective. And for me, it was very clear that I was a Jew. And I realized at a young age that the reason I'm called the Jew is not from because I'm from the tribe of Judah. Within Israel, there's 12 tribes, and I'm actually from the tribe of Levi from both sides of my family. So the only reason I'm called a Jew is because the name of the civilization when the Romans had displaced us was called Judea, hence becoming known as Judeans. But if the land today is called Israel, which is actually the historic name of the land, uh, the name that we always identified, the land of Israel, and also the name of the entire nation, including my tribe, then I should be identifying as Israeli. So I've always identified as Israeli from a very young age. Um, the narrative for the Jewish people is that there was a crime committed against us 2000 years ago. And, you know, sometimes we need to understand that certain histories are relevant for different populations and Israelis and Zionists and Jews have to be open to the histories that are relevant to Palestinians and Palestinians have to be open to the histories that are re relevant to uh, Israelis. Cause a lot of Palestinians say, oh, well, who cares what happened uh, 2000 years ago? We care what happened 2000 years ago. In fact, all of our culture surrounds what happened 2000 years ago. When we get married, we smash the glass, uh, you know, the cup and we yell Mazel Tov and that's to resemble the rebuilding of Jerusalem with the next generation to come because it was destroyed. Or we say next year at Jerusalem, every Passover, we pray towards Jerusalem. All of these elements were built to remind us to come back home and revive the civilization. Having nothing to do with Islam or with Arabs or with Palestinians or with anything like that. It was just come back to your homeland. Uh, in 1948, we successfully in our narrative kicked out the British. And when I say we kicked out the British, there are many paramilitary groups that uh, in a way one could even say terrorized the British. And this form of terrorism was used uh, not against civilians, but against the British military. And they classified the Jews that were part of this as terrorists. And in a way, terrorism can be used as a form of anti-colonialization, right? You can make the price of occupation more expensive than the benefits you get from the exploitation of the land. And that's what they did to the British to the point that they eventually left. So for us, 1948 doesn't represent uh, a war with the Arabs. The independence they wore post the creation of Israel does represent that. But for us, when we celebrate our independence, it's not the survival of the war from 48 with the Arabs, it's the independence from the British. And so we see ourselves as the collective that is native to the land, which we've always maintained a constant presence in the land. And in the destruction of Judea, many different empires rose and fell. After the Romans, you had the Byzantines, then you had the Crusades, then you had the Caliphate, then you had the Ottomans, then you had the, the British and maybe a few in between. But the land was always controlled by, by a foreign empire, an empire where this territory was not a country, a civilization, um, a state or a kingdom. It was a territory amongst the vast empire that the Romans had called Palestine after destroying Judea. And so our plight was always to return back home. Now, a lot of people say, well, Zionism is a new term that started, uh, you know, around 100 years ago, a little bit more with Herzl and so on and so on. But the, the, the answer to that is Zionism started the moment we were kicked out of Zion. Zion for us is Jerusalem. And the only reason that we know about Zionism is because it was the only movement out of many that actually succeeded. There were many movements that sought to bring the Jewish people back to Israel, uh, that sought to achieve what Zionism achieved. And Zionism is the only one known because it's the last one and it's the one that succeeded in bringing us home. Now, a lot of people try to conflate Zionism with the displacement of Palestinians, with the suffering of Palestinians, with the status quo. But what's important for a lot of Palestinians to understand 
is that when you guys are identifying anti-Zionism and saying that this is anti all these negative things, the people that you're speaking to, your cousins, Israelis, uh, Jews, when they identify with this word Zionist, they don't even have the picture of a Palestinian in that conversation. It's just the self-determination of the Jewish people in their homeland. And we should have a conversation about what happened during the ethnic conflicts and wars that we had, not only in 48, but there were massacres of communities on both sides and displacements of communities on both sides before 48 even. And I think the origins of those uh, massacres and those problems, I think, go a lot to the British Empire, which the British Empire, wherever they were, played a lot into this divide and conquer mentality. They did the same thing in India and Pakistan, and they empowered certain individuals and spread out certain narratives on both sides, which caused both of us to experience the other as the enemy. For example, uh, placing the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem as the leader of the Palestinians, who himself had a lot of anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric and beliefs and even met with Hitler to discuss how they would kill the Jews living in the land post the conquering of the world. Uh, if Hitler would have succeeded. And for Jews, that meant, okay, if this is your leader, that means this is what Palestinians are, they're our enemies. And unfortunately, that's how we were tricked to experiencing a lot of Palestinians. And the same thing the other way around, uh, by giving, for example, you mentioned the Balfour Declaration, which for me, I don't see as legitimate at all because the British weren't legitimate in the first place. So who are the British to decide who to give the land to? And furthermore, I would even say, you know, what if the Balfour Declaration stated that the land shouldn't be a Jewish state? Would I be using the Balfour Declaration to say this is a legitimate piece of, of uh, you know, li literature or legitimate piece of, of law that was passed or document that was passed? No, I would not be using those as examples. So for me, it's not necessarily about legality or illegality, but it's more so about morality. Um, so for me, the, the morality behind Zionism and the right for Israel to exist is the self-determination of a, of a native population. So the way I describe the story of Israel, it's the story of a 4,000-year-old native population that were forcibly displaced by a Western white imperial nation called the Romans. And even during their displacement, they maintained a constant presence in that land. There was never a time in history without Jews. And after 2000 years of persecution, oppression and extermination, we eventually created the most successful indigenous liberation movement that ever existed, where for the first time in history, a native population came back throughout the colonial force, the British, revived their language, revived their civilization, and were able to declare liberation. And it's actually, I think, a movement that should and has inspire and empower minorities and indigenous peoples throughout the world. The problems after that, I attribute to ethnic conflict. If there weren't wars between the Israelis and Palestinians or the Jews and Arabs, there would have been no displacements on either side. There would have been no deaths on either side. And let me be clear, the displacements happened on both sides. A lot of people know about Palestinians being displaced, but Jews were displaced from Judea and Samaria, the West Bank as well. Jews were displaced from Jerusalem as well. Jews were displaced from Hebron as well. And Jews were displaced also from the Arab countries that they were residing in. My family uh, you know, experienced the massacre in Ujda, which is in Morocco. Now this does not represent all Muslims. This does not represent all Arabs. It's not represent all of Moroccans or the government even of Morocco, which was actually favorably positive towards the Jews. This represents individuals. However, we cannot water down the experience of each other. Palestinians have dealt with a lot of trauma and Jews and Israelis have dealt with a lot of trauma and it's important to break those down uh, to be able to move forward. Now, in terms of moving forward, after we've had several ethnic wars, wars that were waged by the surrounding Arab nations to ethnically cleanse the Jewish population, that was their goal. Um, now we live in a certain status quo uh, where we're kind of 
not doing anything about the situation. And those that are in positions of power are profiting either politically or economically from our current status quo. So for me, the way we move forward will actually come from the population. So you mentioned a few things that I do want to, to you know, kind of give my insight on and to maybe further expand. Um, you mentioned like a, a lot of Palestinians use triggering words like colonizer and apartheid. And in a way to the literal definition, it's not an apartheid because an apartheid country is one territory, one government, two different laws or three or four or five different laws based on different populations. Within Israel, everyone has equal rights. And then you have Judea and Samaria, West Bank, which is divided into three. So already a different territory under the Palestinian Authority, already a different government. Or you have Gaza, which is under Hamas, different territory, different government. And you have Jordan, which is three-fifths of the mandate of Palestine, uh, different territory, different government. So it's by definition actually not apartheid at all because apartheid means one territory, one government, different laws. Now, when Palestinians are talking about apartheid, I understand what they mean. What they mean is the reality is that this land is divided and people cannot live equally in this land. And that is something that I think we need to fix because the reality is that Israel is in a position of power and does have the ability to change the status quo and isn't doing a good of enough job or one would even say doing anything to change that status quo and elevate the standard of living and fulfill the aspiration and end the injustices that exist on both sides, both for Israelis and for Palestinians. So I understand the perception of words being used like apartheid. I understand the perception of words being used like colonizer because you know colonialism like Adal previously had defined in the previous uh, debate had said, this is a motherland coming and taking the resources and using those resources, exporting them back to the motherland. The Jews don't have a motherland. In fact, our motherland is Israel and we're the native population that came back home. So it's not colonization, but a lot of Arabs and Palestinians living in the land, when Jews started to come back, they experienced them as foreigners. Because unfortunately, when you go through 2000 years of being away from your home, you don't only go through physical colonization, but mental colonization in the way you dress, in the way you speak, in the way uh, you, know, you articulate yourself, even in some of your values that starts to change when you're living in the diaspora for so long. Now, although Jews kept for the most part their identity and who they are and stuff like that, there were a lot of things that were colonized that for uh, Palestinians and Arabs in 48 and before that, when they saw Jews coming back, especially Jews that were displaced living in Europe, which they weren't European, they were displaced Jews living in Europe, their experience was someone that's foreigner coming and that's why they associated these words to colonizers. So there's a nuance to this conversation. Jews are not colonizers, but we need to also understand why a lot of Palestinians have experienced Jews as colonizers or came to the conclusion. Uh, you mentioned high achievers. Uh, definitely there, there are amazing things within Jewish culture that allow us to be able to become successful even after the hardest of circumstances that we've dealt with. And it's not because Jews or non-Jews are any better or any worse. Uh, there's no code within our DNA that makes us uh, any different. We're all human beings, we're all born equal. However, there are definitely things within Jewish education that help people uh, become successful. And I can list a few. Uh, today, it is common for most human beings in modern countries to be literate, to know how to read and write. Uh, even if they're not educated and, and well-versed on, on many different things than cultured, they know how to read and write. This wasn't the case 200, 300 years ago. But for Jewish people throughout history, all Jews were literate because we had bar and bat mitzvahs. And it was, it was necessary for you to become a man or for you to become a woman to learn how to read and write and to be educated. Then there's other levels besides just literacy education, you know, constantly learning 
Torah and the questioning and de getting deeper and the, this source and that source and, you know, researching and, and finding the, the source over here. So you had a level of, of education that existed within a Jewish community that didn't exist everywhere. Of course, there were Jews that were uneducated and there were non-Jews that were educated, but this was a very relevant and big part of Jewish culture throughout the world. Then we also usually come from families that had both parents present in the in the household, both parents that took a you know tremendous amount of pride and importance to raise their children right, to give them every opportunity, to give them every you know opportunity to be educated and to experience and to learn and to grow and to install a level of, of pride and you know go educate yourself and be the best that you can be. If it's going to be a lawyer, be a lawyer. If it's going to be a doctor, be a doctor. If it's going to be an artist, go be an artist. Really, this this level of inspiration to give to the next generation, which again. You know, it's not every single Jewish family, but it's a deep part of Jewish culture. Uh, so, and also you could say the values. Uh, and there's another element that doesn't exist within other minority communities around the world of helping each other. And that's a very Middle Eastern concept, actually, uh, to help one another be able to rise. So, oh, you need help. You want to do this. You want to do that. Oh, my cousin did this or my uncle is involved with that. Let me connect you with this person. Let me connect you with that person. That is very big within the Jewish community to help one another, which a lot of uh, black rappers within America talk about in their songs, how the Jews are able to help each other to rise up within uh, white systems and, and white countries or just in general within countries. So I would talk about that uh, if it comes to, to the values. In terms of, you, you mentioned a few times, uh, demographic replacement. I would definitely not use that term because replacement is almost as if there's a group of people that came and removed systematically and intentionally another population. And that is not what happened. Uh, there were wars and conflicts that existed between us. And what happened during those wars is a lot of communities were displaced on both sides. It just so happens that Israel won those wars. If Israel hadn't won those wars, I don't think there'd be any Jews living in the land anymore. So it's not that there was a systematic attempt to displace people because there were no displacements unless there were ethnic conflicts. And look, there's 20% of the Israeli population today is, uh, is Arab. And if you look at, you know, you have millions of Palestinians living in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, millions of Palestinians, and Israel in one second can, you know, remove those Palestinians, and they haven't. So the intention was never to remove. However, there was uh, uh, something to criticize is that they were never in a conversation to figure out what do we do and how could we live and how can we figure out a way to achieve our aspirations that also includes them. I, I do criticize the fact that this layer of nuance of how to involve both populations to achieve aspirations wasn't included in the conversations. I do think there were groups like the Lehi that did have those conversations, but they were a minority amongst the whole. And so that's what I would talk about. You mentioned European Jews. Uh, Jews weren't treated as Europeans ever in Europe. We were massacred for, for not being European. Uh, you know, we didn't have equal rights in Europe. We weren't able to own laws. Uh, we were completely subjugated. So even though we had an experience in Europe, I would call it an experience and not that uh, we were European at all. Yeah, Anyways, I just uh, quickly to interject. I, I, by, by Euro, when I said European Jews, I just meant Jews coming from Europe. I, I'm, yeah. I will understand, um, and it is my perspective, that Jews were not considered European by other Europeans. Um, it was, you know, they, they, they experienced anti-Semitism for centuries uh, when Richard the Lionheart was on the Crusades on his way to Jerusalem. Um, he, they were killing every Jew they could find in the Rhineland. So much so to when, when they arrived at Jerusalem, the Jews there were fighting alongside the Muslims with Salah Adin against the Crusaders. So just to clarify, by saying European Jews, I didn't mean uh, that Jews were European. They weren't considered European. 
Uh, I just meant Jews that were coming from Europe. Yeah, there's guys, a few I people are seeing in the comments that are saying. Yeah, that let, let me let me step in real quick. Systematic because, attempt. Rudy, because I, I I actually tend to to agree with them. There are certain examples where we did systematically uh, remove Palestinians from their homes. It, it started when we bought lands from the Ottomans. There's actually a disagreement amongst the early Zionists as with whether to let Palestinians stay in their homes or to buy the land and kick kick them out. And and I don't know the exact number, but tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Palestinians had to leave their homes because Jews made deals with Ottoman uh, landowners who they're not the rightful owners of that land anyway. So it's just it, it was a deal between two people who had money. And the people who lived there for for many generations but, had to Adal, leave. you have to be very 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 careful when you use systematic because there's a difference between certain things happening uh, from one individual doing something and something being systematic right for example you could have racism within a society uh, that exists amongst individuals but systematic racism is very different it's the structure of the society it's the structure of the laws it's the structure and i don't think the structure of jewish culture or jewish society or you know, Israeli society, or or the way that we came into the land was uh, to systematically remove people. Now, of course, you know, even it happens in every society that when you want to, you know, buy property, there's competition between, you know, let me offer more money, let me offer this, let me give in an extra deal. People will compete for property all the time. And you know, if you want to say the Ottomans weren't the rightful owners, then before the Ottomans, before that, before that, before that, who were the rightful owners? We can go as to the original peoples, which are the Jews. Uh, I do not think there was a systematic removal. It wasn't the goal of the Jewish people to remove the Palestinians. If it was, they would have done so. They won the wars and they were also after, even today, in a position where they can do that. I think what happened is a lot of people were displaced during ethnic conflicts. The only removals of people that happened on both sides were during wars, were during like, you know, rebel militant groups fighting one another. For example, Del Yassin, right? There was militants that were fighting Jewish communities that were fighting from Del Yassin as a base and the Jewish militants went to Del Yassin to fight off those militants. There was a whole uh, conflict that went down and uh, you know, unfortunately civilians were killed, like civilians were killed on both sides at that time, when you have war among civilian populations. And because of that, people left and people were displaced and so on. So it's not a systematic attempt intentionally to remove people. It's a conflict that is going on that then removes people. And of course, there are individuals on both sides that had negative opinions or did negative actions. But I think it, you have to be very careful when we say something is systematic. So I, I don't want to get stuck in the semantics. You, you may be correct that because it was done prior to Israel having its own government, that it would not be considered systematic. But we do need to acknowledge... Well, I, I just it, 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 hold on. I just want to clarify this point. The, the, there was an injustice where Pal Palestinians were removed from their homes because the Jews who returned made deals with the Ottoman landowners and kicked tens of thousands of Palestinians out of their home. This was prior to the conflict. This is an injustice. So, okay. So, would you say there was a systematic removal of Jews because Palestinians did other things to remove Jews? Will so innately, the, the word systematic, right, but, but I'm, I'm open to the idea that technically it's not considered systematic, but it was a removal of Palestinians from their homes by the early Zionists, and we should acknowledge populations. There were, and I said, there were removal of both populations by both populations that doesn't generalize either populations. And so we need to understand the suffering that both, both populations went through, but not use that suffering to mask the other population as the bad guy. And that's very important for both sides, including Israelis, 
right? A lot of Israelis like identify all Palestinians as terrorists because terrorism exists within that, uh, you know, government within the PA and Hamas and within also the population. But that does not define Palestinian identity. That does not define Palestinian existence. That does not define who Palestinians are. So you're, you're talking about in a time where there was ethnic conflict, a lot of Jews couldn't move back on the land. A lot of Jews were being kicked out, like for example, the Hebron massacre. And so a lot of, some people said, you know what, we'll do it in a different way. And we'll have, th this was an ethnic conflict going on. It's not a systematic uh, removal of a population. It's not the colonial idea of we're gonna come and we're going to remove this population and replace our people. It's we're going to come back and then there are struggles between both that is happening on both sides that has caused suffering on both sides. And we need to be yeah, able but, to but, understand that suffering, but not use it to kind of like demonize one population. I, I'm with you, but an important aspect of the reconciliation uh, process, in my opinion, is for each side to acknowledge the errors in their history. So sure. uh, again, the Hebron massacre, sure. My, my family lived in Hebron there then at the time. But, you know, as an Israeli Jew, I feel like it's important for us to recognize the, our mistakes of the past and not try to lump them in as they did that, we did that. We 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 committed injustices and we should acknowledge it. It doesn't say anything about who we are we? today. But what do you mean by we? Because you wouldn't say Palestinians committed terrorism. You would say Palestinian individuals committed terrorism. So when you're saying we, you're lumping in all Israelis, all Jews of committing acts that maybe certain individuals did. And that's what's important yeah. to be able to break down because we would not I, hold that standard to Palestinians. We should not do that to Jews either. I, I, I'll give it back to Jason after this because I don't want to hog too much mic time, but I say we, not that and you and I are guilty for the actions of our ancestors. I, I definitely do not believe that. But I say we as a form of, as the Jewish people, as a collective responsibility and the and the reason that i emphasize the we here is only because i think it's important for the reconciliation process right palestinians view us as an entity as a group as a people so in order for us to begin the reconciliation process it would be important if we as a nation can acknowledge wrongdoings from the past as we should expect for them to do as well i so so that's kind of wh where my framing comes from but i'll i'll leave it back to you guys i just wanted to jump in on that yeah, okay. So, I mean, in regards to what you said about the Ottomans selling land to the Jews, I think uh, uh, prior, you know, during the 1880s and, and when that was happening, that was only, that, that's only a tenth of the picture or a third of the picture. In some case, some people were selling land to Jewish people, uh, some people were actively resisting, um, and, and there were some cases where they were just being tolerated. So, um, I mean, look, it's easy to say, you know, that, that Zionism didn't want to, uh, uh, didn't have any intention to displace or to, to harm the local population that was living there. But when you, when, you, when you take it to its logical conclusion, it has unintended consequences, right? Many Palestinians think in order, you know, to have, uh, in order to have their country, Zionists knew that they had to drive the local population out of that land. And I don't think that was the case. Zionists just wanted a country, right? They, they, they came and we happened to be living on the land. And when things got messy, you took care of business. Uh, it was more of an impromptu decision rather than a deliberate plan like many Palestinians think. But hey, in the end, the net result is the same. You, you won the war, Palestinians lost, and now Palestinians are suffering. We're paying the price for it, you know? So, I mean, like, if you have, 
humanity, if you have a heart, um, and 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 you, you having experienced, you know, all the suffering in Europe for centuries, you know, uh, then you th then you would want to solve the statelessness or, or or the issue with the local population that that lives there. You know, I've been trying to explain this as best I can, where I can, to my communities. That Jews have suffered a lot, you know, and all the reasonable people that I talk that that I talk to agree with me. But they say, you know, uh, there was never a Holocaust of uh, Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews. You know, six million Jews were not killed by Arab Muslims. It happened in Europe. I mean, in Iraq, in the Abbasid Caliphate. Jews were advisors to the caliphs because they were high achievers and, and more creative. And Iraq had a Jewish religious academy, which is where all Jewish law and interpretation comes from. Iraq was the center of Jewish learning. You know, it sure wasn't U Ukraine or Poland. You know, that didn't happen until the 1700s when the Jewish uh, Hush Kafar uh, and the emergence of the Shabad uh, Lubavitch movement. You know, Ash then Ashkenazi Jewry comes into the picture. You know, so if you were a Jew in Lithuania in the 1300s and you wanted to get a Jewish ruling on something, guess what you would do? You'd write a letter to the Jewish Academy of Baghdad. They had a parliament-like structure with an upper and lower house. You know, the the lower house was called Pumpadita. You know, um, the academy, and uh, the 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 upper house was the Sura Academy. You know, the Farhud happened in 1941 when news arrived that Palestinian Arabs were being discriminated against in the British mandate of Palestine, you know, and, and too many uh, Jews in Iraq were supporting the Zionist project, you know, in other words, accused of treason. Now, I'm not going to go into whether the, you know, the moralities of the uh, Farhud was right or wrong, because we can say the same about the Irgun or Lehi or Lehi, um, you know, the Jewish military forces. You know, Zionists don't concede that their actions were ethnic cleansing. So you say it was a consequence of war, and I guess the same, you know, with the ex expulsions of Jews from the Middle East back to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to Israel. Um, but I mean, you know, um, you know, the, 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 the I think that the, I, I do think that the primary conflict is, is about, you know, demography, you know, it's, it's numbers, you know, nobody likes to be outnumbered through a great replacement, you know, it's not sufficient to say, um, you know, simply, uh, you know, Jews had an ancient connections. Well, sure you do, but you were kicked out in like 135 CE. You would go on to remain a minority on the land at its lowest was 1.7% between the river and, and the sea and 8% as its highest. That's the data. I mean, I can show you um, a demographic chart from the Jewish virtual library that shows the demography over time and you see what happened. And you look from 1946 uh, to 1948, uh, the Palestinians were uh, were reduced by you know, a million in numbers. Um, and so, I mean, that's, I know you don't want to call it a demographic reversal, but that's, 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 what, it, that's what it was. Um, and that's what Palestinians have experienced. I mean, that's how, that, that you know, that, that's, that's how I see it. Um, you know, because Zionism is not like a typical nationalist movement. Because typical nationalist movements seek to create a country for the people who constitute a demographic majority on the desired territory. 
Zionists, on the other hand, wanted to create a Jewish state on a piece of land that hadn't had a Jewish demographic majority for nearly 2,000 years. So this was always going to, to, to result in some uh, problems. You know, I mean, like, uh, can, you, can you acknowledge that? Or can you give me any examples of other people that have sat back and allowed the demographic outnumbering of their, of their own people with arms wide open? I mean, it's not exactly a reasonable expectation uh, to for uh, to place on a Palestinian in the late 1800s um, to to be like okay come and come and out <laughs> come and outnumber us so yeah. I mean I, I I do like if you if you hang on where can I sh I have a link you can, share you can do a screen share I think on the left side you see screen share I I just while you're while you're figuring out how to do that I just want to reinforce your point and then we'll give Rudy an opportunity to respond. And then I would like to move on to a different topic because we're already 45 minutes in and we're still talking about the past. We've got to talk about the present. We've got to talk about the future. Um, but I, it, it's also, you make a very interesting point, Jason, about psychologically what it does to a people when they go from the mi mi majority to the minority. We're, we're seeing signs of this in, in America. You know, there's a lot of anxiety amongst white people in America. And it seems one of the reasons, I mean, obviously socioeconomics and lack of political representation are part of the reason, but the fact that they're becoming a minority in America seems to create a great concern amongst them. So, it, you know, we talked about um, a replacement, but we didn't mention that it also comes in the form of the fact that Jews can move back to the land and are incentivized to move back to the land and Palestinians cannot return. So there's, there's many factors when it comes into playing in what created this replacement, but I think you bring up a very good point, which I myself have not considered in in building this unified narrative is psychologically what it does to people when they go from a majority to a minority population. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, do you have anything else you want to add to the topic or can we pass it over to Rudy? Yeah, I mean, look, if, um, if you're accepting that in 1882, it was reasonable that the Palestinians were just a little bit reluctant at Jewish immigration into what was Palestine, then um, can you not accept that after 1967, since they started putting settlements in the West Bank, that those three million Palestinians would have less rights on the land than the half a million settlers? You know, uh, could you not see how like the three million Palestinians feel? I mean, they're, they're being kept stateless without rights. Uh, and if you put half a million, uh, if you put half a million there, so that they, you know, uh, one day outnumber the population in in that region i mean that's it feels like the you know there are more jews living outside of israel than within israel right there are 15 million jews all all, all around the world which together you know um 6.5 to 7 million of those um live inside israel now most of them are living uh, in Europe uh, or in America, and for all them, you know, to rock up to uh, and live in, inside Israel or the West Bank, um, you, I'm sure you would support. Uh, but that shift that would, that would create a demographic shift, a radical demographic shift in the in the land. So in the West Bank, you're going to have the same situation uh, that you have in Israel proper. You know, in Israel proper, the Israeli Arabs. Um, you know, people who have lived in the land for over 2,000 years are now the minority in what was their own country or what was, you know, their own region. Um, 
you know, what yeah, in their own region. But like, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't, I think if, uh, and, and the, yeah, the, the, the more you populate the, the, the West Bank, um, it will uh, increase, I, th I don't think that there will be given citizenship until there is a clear uh, demographic majority of Jewish people uh, living inside the West Bank and in Israel proper, then that, that they would be considered, that you consider something like this without changing the demography of Israel. Because if you were to give citizenships to all Arabs, we would, we, it wouldn't be a clear Jewish majority and that would defeat the purpose of the Jewish state. And I don't want that. I don't want to, like, as I said before, you know, my, my uh, family's property, my grandfather, my great-grandfather had property in Haifa. Now, for me to rock up to Haifa and say, okay, every, everyone here, like, that's it. Uh, uh, I'm taking back what was mine. We're going to, like, I think that is not only impractical, but it, it's immoral because I don't think that we should replace people because they've replaced us. You know, you have fourth, fifth, sixth generation Jews living there now that their livelihoods depend on this. You know, um, so I think, uh, and and also when it comes to uh, lawfare against Israel with the BDS movement and 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 wanting to sue uh, Israel in the international cr criminal cr court again, it's not practical. People have been chanting, "Oh, Palestine will be free from the river to the sea," got rocking up at protests and everything. And what happens? <laughs> it, it, it just gets the the more settlements keep on happening it doesn't get it doesn't get any better the 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 something has to change and what needs to change is going from a hostile attitude to a reconciliation uh, a reconciliation type attitude uh where we can um yeah where we can uh, uh focus on moving moving forward and and living together how this happens, um, uh, I'll, I'll leave to, to when we talk about that subject. Great. Um, we, we seem to have lost Rudy. Uh, I'm sure he will be back any moment. It's probably just an internet um, issue. So, J Jason, it sounds like what, what you're acknowledging is we need to recognize that there was population replacement, but the solution to that injustice is not by creating a new injustice of population replacement, which to me sounds like a very moderate position, which involves reconciliation without creating any new injustices. Mm -hmm. Would you? Great. And just in time for Rudy to return. You know, it's strange because I, I still heard the thing going but I had to refresh the page because for some reason, both of your faces went black. Um, and it kind of happens maybe like once or twice during this software. We still see you in blue, or I, I, I see a blue screen. Do you see Rudy? You see, you see me in blue. So let me, let me try to refresh it then. Yeah, let's, let's refresh it again. Guys in the comments, um, where's everyone uh, tuning in from? Where's everyone from? Jason, do you have any um, aspirations yeah, so, to re to return at some point? Look, frankly, the the situation it's this is not a conflict between a state and another state like India and Pakistan, where you had the transfer. Jason, had, sir, 
Jason, sorry to cut you off. I will give you an opportunity to speak on that if it's super important, but I, I do want to pass it over to Rudy because he's been sure. waiting, okay? Yeah. Great. Oh, yeah. Can you hear me in semifinal? now? Yep. Okay. Uh, so first of all, Jason, inshallah, bezat Hashem, one day you will be able to come back to Haifa and we'll be able to sit over uh, some nice coffee, some hookah, some knafe, and talk about uh, our people's history and connection to this land. Um, yeah. There's definitely a lot of, of differences that I have with you on the things that you've addressed, and I do want to be able to touch on them all. Um, mm -hmm. The Jewish experience in the Muslim Arab world has been one that has had highs and lows. And the highs don't uh, minimize the lows, and the lows don't minimize the highs. It's very important to understand that there were good times and there were bad times, and the good times don't represent every single individual, and the bad times don't represent every single individual. Um, I don't know how you can compare the Farhud or the massacre of Ujda or the fact that there are basically no Jews living in Arab countries anymore because we were all ethnically cleansed to a current war between two populations on the land because the British were kind of playing one against the other. Uh, you know, it's one thing for, uh, you know, a, a city X and city Y, city X is Israeli, city Y is Palestinian, and for there to be militant groups within both and them fighting each other and one for eventually to get killed kicked out and you know the Jews living in Baghdad to be violently murdered and massacred on the streets and kicked yeah. out or the Jews in Ujda to be violently massacred. I, I think I think there is a difference, although you it is important to mention uh, what you're saying that it wasn't a time where the Arab world was reacting in my opinion in the wrong way to a situation happening in this region. Right. It did have to do also with this region like the Ujda massacre was in 1948. Right. It was a response also to the creation of Israel. Um, and unfortunately, that was taken out on the Jewish population, which, you know, had nothing to do with anything. They were just Jews living there. Um, but I do think that that's an ethnic, uh, an ethnic cleansing. Um, the same way if today, let's say there's no war and one population comes and kicks out the other because there's another issue happening there, that would be considered an ethnic cleansing here uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to Zionism, I think it's very important for us to, to demystify this term. Uh, because unfortunately, too many Israelis and Palestinians define it differently. And if there was no war in 48, if the Jews coming back to Israel were able to create their homeland, and when I say create the homeland, it's not stealing a state, it's not taking away another country, because there was no other country. And you talk about the Jews being a minority in their homeland, that's true. The same way like Native Americans are a minority in their homeland as well. The difference is there was no country built on top of it, but there was like 700,000 Jews before the British, uh, sorry, 700,000 individuals like Israelis, sorry, Jews, Muslims, Christians, Druzim, Chokesim, there were 700,000 people. So it's not like there was this huge, massive civilization. And even amongst the Arabs, there was never this collective homogeneous identity. It was, you know, Hevron and Shem Nablus. It was the family like controlling this part. And it was, it was not one civilization. So the, the coming back and the creating of Israel does not remove the idea that Palestinians can continue to exist the way that they existed. Now, they didn't continue to exist the way they existed because Palestinians left and some were removed and some Jews were removed and some Jews left because of a war. And I think it's very important to understand that that is why both of us suffered, not because we achieved our aspirations. So, and it's in another way to help Palestinians achieve their aspirations won't remove our successes and our like aspirations in the same way. This is another layer that the Israelis need to accept that when we're talking about 
Palestinian suffering and Palestinian aspirations. We don't need to take it uh, against our own ideas of what a future is and what our needs are. Um, you mentioned settlements. I really don't like the term settlements, and I'll explain why. Of course, you can choose to use whatever vocabulary you can, but I'll tell you why it's yeah. offensive to Israelis, because settlements implies foreigners. And the same way I wouldn't call a new Palestinian village being built uh, in Judean Samaria, an Arab village being built in Israel, I would not call that a settlement. I would call that a village, a city, a town, a community, because settlement implies foreigners. And this term is, will only be used when it's Jews building on their land, which just so happens to be most of these quote-unquote settlements or Jewish uh, villages and towns are built on ancient ruins that they found archaeology of ancient Jewish cities that were then rebuilt. Um, I'm against the removal of any population, any individual, both historically and currently. Uh, I don't believe anyone should be removed from this land, and I do believe there will be a way for us to live together, and we can definitely uh, touch on that as we go. You know, the reason why I have a problem with demographic replacement is because it gives a, a sort of aesthetic that there was an, a, a deliberate attempt to remove a people and put another people. And I think you used another word that I think is, is more neutral, demographic shift. Because demographic shift touches on the reality that the demographic you know, reality changes. Uh, so I think the shift in the, in the demographics is a better word to use than the replacement. Um, I do want to finish up because we do need to get on the other uh, topics. Um, but this issue, I think, represents the entire conversation that we're having previously. For example, the Nakba. Most Israelis have a problem with the Nakba. And they don't have a problem with the Nakba because of what the Palestinians are truly trying to commemorate. They have a problem with the Nakba because of their experience with what the Palestinians are trying to do. And what I mean by that is the Nakba is, is, is commemorated on specifically the day on the solar calendar where the Jews were able to have their independence and kick off the British. And so I do believe there needs to be a space for Palestinians to uh, commemorate their suffering, to remember what they went through, to have a day of you know not, not only remembering, but having remorse and compassion and understanding and, and to identify with a day. But it doesn't have to be on the day that Israel was created. Because it's not because Israel was created that that was the suffering. It's because there was a conflict that that suffering. Because, you know, you can say Zionism caused all the negatives, but you won't talk about the positives that it caused. Like me, you know, having, doing my master's degree in Israel is not because of Zionism. Because regardless of, you know, Zionism or not, I'm the one who chose to come here. And what I do in my actions now doesn't define what a movement did then. Because that's my choice to come here. That's my choice to do things. So I don't think that we need to associate everything that happened post the creation of Israel to the reason why Israel was created, which is what we define as Zionism. And I think that is one of the most contentious parts of this conversation that causes us not to understand each other. Because really, when we talk about Zionism, we talk about the fact that for 2,000 years, we had a promise to each generation that one day we'll come home. And we succeeded in doing that, not by removing Palestinians, but by kicking out the British. And unfortunately, those same British and others pinned us against each other. We fought each other. Unfortunately, we were played and we're still fighting each other today. Unfortunately, we're still being played. And that is what's causing conflict and removal of both populations and the suffering of both. And in order to move forward, we do need to talk about normalization of humanization of the experience and understanding of both narratives. Mm -hmm. um, but I also do think that there are ways to solving this problem without, as you mentioned, bringing a large influx of Jews to Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, and then all of a sudden Israel having a you know demographic majority within the entire line, including the West Bank, and being able to annex the entirety of it. I think there are other ways to do that, 
And for me, I never propose this is the solution because I think the solution is something that will be worked up by the peoples on the ground, uh, like a painting. You know, you pick the, the frame of the painting after you paint and the artists, the Israelis and Palestinians have not even had a conversation yet on what they want to paint or what canvas they're using and what paintbrushes they're using and so on. So I do think that there's a possibility to create something and it could be a form of Emirate or Federation plan, which is a hypothetical solution that can allow the civilization to be Jewish enough and Israeli enough for the Jews and Israelis and be Palestinian and Arab enough for the Palestinians. So there are conversations out there that we can have that allows us to transcend. But before we even get there, before we even get into creating that solution, I think we need to have a conversation about the now into how do we help like me as a Jewish and Israeli rights activist and as an activist that also tries to help this conflict become you know, a different reality, a reality where we can both live in, mm -hmm. how can I play my role to communicate that to my community and to bring my community to the greater consciousness and more holistic truth that Palestinians also exist, that Palestinians also have suffered, that Palestinians also do suffer, that Israel has more power today, that Israel has the ability to change this conflict. How do we start that conversation? And I think that's one of the most interesting topics uh, that we can talk about the right now. And of course, we can talk about the future as well. Um, but I'd love to know from your perspective, because what we deal with is very different than what you deal with, because one, in Israel, we can be outspoken uh, in Hamas, under Hamas, in Gaza, and under the PA, in the West Bank, and in Judea and Samaria, many Palestinians cannot be outspoken, whereas Israelis can, so we do have that liberty. But at the same time, in the diaspora, when it comes to intellectual spaces, especially on college campuses, every single Jewish or pro-Israel group on campuses wants to engage with the Palestinian group, and almost every single Palestinian group, not every single Palestinian individual, but almost every single Palestinian group has a, a layer of anti-normalization where they encourage and prevent people from having discussions and humanizing and being able to relate to Israelis or anyone that relates with Israel. And I think this is one of the biggest problems because if we can't even speak to each other, how can we live together? How can we understand each other? How can we change what unfortunately our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were forced to fight together? How do we change that reality for me and you, Jason? And how do we change that reality for our children if we cannot even engage with each other? So I'd love to know, maybe you can share with me and with Adele and with the audience some of your experiences with uh, anti-normalization and as an individual that speaks against that, what has been the reaction and how do you see us being able to move forward from that? Sure, sure. So um, just before I touch on that, the only reason why I, I, I was using the terms, you know, like uh, uh, demographic reversal and everything, that there is a rabbi called Chaim Simons, which documents the efforts to transfer Palestinians to Jordan. And, and, that's, and that's what a lot of Palestinians would interpret as tr a part of, 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 of the demographic, you know, uh, reversal that they've, that, that they've experienced. Not to minimize what you, you what you're saying, but I'm just saying this is this is why this is this is why I say things like that because are you saying currently or, or historically? Historically, so if you Google the Rabbi Chaim Simons, he documents the efforts to transfer Palestinians to Jordan as if you know Palestinians that Jordan is a Palestinian state when it's not. Like Jordan was. Uh, uh, Jordan was the was was the country on the other side of the Jordan River. I mean, if if the Palestinians considered themselves uh, Jordanian, they wouldn't have assassinated King Abdullah the first in 1951 when he came to pray at at the Dome uh, uh, of the Rock. Palestinians started their national identity and 
1908 and 1911 through the, the newspapers Al-Karmil and Palestine. Um, and that was, that was created by the Christians as an anti-Zionist movement because they had heard from the sort of global orthodox network uh, in, in Russia and Eastern Europe that the Jews were intending to come in and, uh, and, and create a state on top of what was a 92% Arab majority. Um, and the, the Balfour Declaration sort of confirmed the fears um, and, and that's when the majority of the Muslim world flipped from being somewhat tolerant of Jews to being paranoid. And, and, and like any religion, Islam is sort of bipolar and, and, and when it's paranoid, carnage happens. Now, like you said, I don't, I don't want to debate the past because it's not about the past anymore. It's about the present. And, and like you said, like there needs to be some level of uh, normalization in terms of communicating with each other and having these, these discussions. What we do not want to normalize is our statelessness, right? And, and frankly, like we're, we're, we're a people, we're not a state. You have a military, you have an air force, you have all these sort of things. I cannot dictate to you what the solution is going to be because I don't have the power to do that, you know, on behalf of these people. What I can do is give you a set of KPIs, you know, uh, we, we want a passport, we want a representative government. Uh, we want the capacity in, to enter into foreign relations with other sovereign states, access to an airport, a port, you know, a currency, freedom of movement, things like that. And if you can deliver that through a one-state solution, I'll say welcome. And if you can deliver that through a two-state solution, I'll say welcome too. And I mean, th th that's th that. Like I said, the, the 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 issue is not about land anymore. It's clear who controls the land. It's about the people that, that, that are, are in it and what legal status they're going to have. And I think the way forward is normalizing, communicating to each other, but not normalizing our statelessness, if that makes sense. Yeah, so um, real wanna... quick, Rudy, just real quick, because I want to do a quick intermission. Uh, whoever's just joining us, thank you for coming. Um, if, if you like what our guests are saying, you can find their contact information in the description. They're very happy to engage in dialogue after this discussion. Follow them on Instagram, Facebook, wherever. My contact information is there as well. Feel free to reach out to me. Um, and if you like this content, please subscribe because we're doing two debates a week plus all sorts of other important content. And I do want to tell both Rudy and Jason what an excellent job they're doing. And one of the ways we see it is that this video has 29 upvotes and zero downvotes, and that's very rare about such a controversial conflict, and that would not be the case if they didn't have the ability to engage in respectful dialogue. So I just want to say thank you, and uh, Rudy, all, all you. Yeah, I think that the, the reason that is is because me and Jason see ourselves as cousins. Mm -hmm. We recognize that we have different narratives because of the experiences that we have, because of the historical narratives that we live through. Uh, but we don't see our futures as apart and we don't see each other as as enemies. And even though sometimes I may say things that Jason disagrees with or Jason says things that I disagree with, I'm not taking that to heart as he's my enemy. I'm saying I'm seeing it as this is just his way of seeing how can I maybe create a more holistic truth where I understand his truth and he understands my truth. Um, thank you for sharing the uh, Rabbi Chaim Simons, which I had never heard before because I always love to, to learn more and to read more. I just looked it up uh, now, and the the title of his document is a historical survey on the proposals to transfer Arabs from Palestine. And he talks a lot about how there were different individuals that proposed this, but not that this was actually something uh, done in practice. 
Yes, the majority, uh, yeah. the majority of Jews at the time, the majority of religious Jews at the time, uh, when Zionism was created, was was were non or anti-Zionist. I mean, there's another yes. person, Simon Dubnow, who was a who was a Jew that was a, like a non-Zionist and everything, because they knew that drawing Zionism to its logical conclusion to build a state on a 92 percent on on the land that had 92 percent Arab majority, uh, it, it would have. Uh, its consequences of people being displaced. Um, and well, uh, to, to, answer, to answer to that, I would say that if you had 700,000 Jews living around, sorry, 700,000 individuals living in the land at that time, some of them are Jews, a minority of them, most of them are Arabs, some of them are Christian Arabs, some of them are Dulzim, Bedouin, Chokassim, and so on. There are millions of Jews in the diaspora. So bringing millions of Jews back does not mean having to, in a theoretical you know, equation, mean removing Palestinians or Arabs. And I don't think that was what was going through the minds of Jews at the time They were talking about coming back. And there were proposals and thoughts because the experience of Palestinians were the enemy because of individuals like the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and because of militant groups that were fighting each other. I, I fully believe, and you may disagree with me, that if we had never experienced each other as the enemy, there would have never been a displacement of either population, and we would have created a conversation around creating a civilization that works for both, which is the conversation we need to have today. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to talk about why religious Jews were against Zionism. It's not because, in my opinion, uh, they saw that this wasn't going to be able to be done because the 92% uh, you know, demographic difference with the Jews. It's because the view of a lot of religious Jews is you cannot go back to Israel until you have the Mashiach, until you have the Messiah. And for them, they're not against Israel being created in the future and for you know the Jews to self-determine and so on. They're against it being done right now. And in my opinion, the reason they're against it being done right now is because they're so psychologically broken for so many generations that they truly believe that we cannot be empowered. And it's a very similar uh, phenomenon that happens um, you know, with the Stockholm syndrome or with, unfortunately, women being in abusive relationships, you have women that, you know, fight back or remove themselves. You have women that make excuses for what's happening. And you have women that then blame themselves and subconsciously, you know, side with their oppressor, side with the person committing that abuse. And that, you know, that subconscious siding with our oppressor exists within the Jewish community from the far left to the far right to the religious to the secular. And for the religious, it was this idea, we cannot be strong, we cannot empower ourselves, we cannot go back to Jerusalem, we can't do it until God does it. Until God does it, we can't do it. And the reason why so many religious Jews were anti-Zionist when Zionism was first starting or first starting to succeed is because it was being done by secular Jews. And it was a whole ego thing because a lot of religious uh, orthodoxy is built fences around our culture of liberation and if you step out of that, that fence, if you step out of all these laws that we've built along the way, which I understand why a lot of them exist, then you are not being your true self and you're going to you know, assimilate and you're going to this and you're going to that and you're going to be a bad Jew. So how could the leaders of the more orthodox individuals and more religious individuals tell their, their constituents, tell their community that the secular Jews actually got something right? It would be directly opposed to everything that they had built, that they had right. And I think the reason for why Zionism and this form of you know, nationalism, not nationalism in the sense of America and Britain, but nationalism in the sense of you know, indigenous liberation existed amongst the secular Jews because the religious Jews did not give us space for that.
And then once Israel was created, most religious Jews today have realized that this is the reality and maybe Mashiach is not a one moment, everything that comes, it's an accomplishment of everything, but we can get into theological conversations uh, later. For me, by the way, I don't consider any solution either one state or two state. I consider it one civilization solution. And when you say one civilization solution, you're not defining by how it's going to look like, but you are implying that it's one land people's living on this land and a reality that can exist where we end the injustices and fulfill the aspirations. And that's what I think is most important in the conversation because a two-state solution, in my opinion, is a crime and will never happen. The Jews don't see this uh, land as territory. We see this land as our soulmates. So there's, you know, there's no way that we would ever give up on living in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, and Jews would never be displaced. In fact, you know, 600 to 700,000 Jews live in Judea and Samaria today, and they all have weapons. And most combat officers within the IDF are religious Zionists. And, you know, most of the country in Israel supports Jews living there. So forget about, like, you know, what would happen in Judea and Samaria, West Bank, if, you know, Israelis were pulled out. And, you know, the fact that this land is higher and this land is lower in terms of military, it's not efficient. And the fact that it doesn't achieve the aspirations of both populations, there'd be a civil war in Israel before the day that there'd be a two-state solution. I'm not so saying I, think I don't believe anyone should move. I don't think anyone should be removed. So we agree on that. All right. So so, so we agree on that. And yeah. I think the, the conversation should be more about like, how do we create a reality that no one is removed and that all have equal access to rights, to movements, to aspirations, to education, to infrastructure, uh, to sanitation, uh, and, and really build a reality where, again, Palestinians, when they live in this land, feel like this is the land that they're from and that the army that exists here is not an army controlling them, but an army protecting them. And how do when Israelis live here feel that they've achieved their aspirations of thousands of years old and that this country is enough that fulfills those needs, but also fills the needs of another population. And that's a conversation that I don't know why we still have not had as a generation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. J Jason, I'd like to throw a question your way because this is a very common concern amongst this Israelis and one of our most active audience members, Gigi Green, shout out, keeps asking this. Um, many Israelis are concerned for their security. They, they have never seen a willingness to compromise or to live side by side from the Palestinians. And, and not only it's not an unwillingness to live side by side, uh, Jews are constantly met by violence. And is you know most israelis do not believe that any solution like a, a one-state solution which it seems like you guys are both on board one with civilization that would keep one one civilization M many israelis are concerned that that will not keep them safe and what percent of extremists currently exist whether it's five percent some people say it's 50 percent i think it's closer to five the fact of the matter is they have more power than the than what the majority have and i do fully recognize that given a change in living conditions you aid in the de-radicalization of of a population so that is one key but do you have any insight as what we can do to not give extremists so much of a say in the matter and how we could give israelis the feeling that they would be safe living together with palestinians well i mean Look, I, I think uh, the way forward in regards to the question, so sorry. I realize it's a very tough question, but I think it's an important. Look, I, 
I think the way that you deal with extremists and radicals um, is that you do not react to them, right? If, uh, and I mentioned this to people before, like if, if, we, if we react, uh, to, if we keep reacting to the radicals on the, on the other side, we end up becoming radicalized. The best way forward is for Jews and Arabs who don't want each other out to come together and outnumber the radicals on both sides. Like I said, if a Jew wants to win an argument, he's going to point to the Arab that wants him out. And if an Arab wants to win an argument, he's going to point to the Jew that wants him out. Right? So it's up to the people that don't want anybody out to come together and outnumber those people and not to, to react to them. As for security uh, questions and stuff like that, I, I, um, I, I, um, I think this will come, the, the, the reason why there's uh, so much, um, uh, I guess, it, it, the, I don't know, the acts of violence is, is an expression of the conflict. It is a symptom of the conflict. You remove, you remove, you solve the conflict and you remove that symptom. And, and, and the issue here is that these people are stateless um, uh, without, you know, uh, freedom of movement or a representative government um, or a currency. And, 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 and that's something that, that we should be focusing on. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, you're, you're talking to a people that were once the majority of the population from the river to the sea that have been reduced into a manageable minority. And I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's how we address, that's how we address radicals. You don't react to them, and you find people from the other side that don't want you out, and you come together and you outnumber those people, so we can work out a way forward. Um, you know, the so. For, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I I think that's a, a great response, and I tend to agree that if we can change the conditions from which radicals are born, then we will have less radicals being born. I'm not in. I still have a concern, and this is a concern about all conflict around the world, is it just takes such a small population of extremists to ruin it for everybody. So I don't have a solution for that. But I do think that the majority of extremism can be alleviated if we create conditions from which extremists will not be born. Um, Rudy, also feel free to chime into this into this topic. And this isn't only true about Palestinian extremism, it's also true about Israeli extremism. That's the conflict we're talking about. How how we have less extremism and more of a, you know, unified people working together towards a common goal. Yeah, Adele can testify to how many very far right-wing Israelis attack me just because I, you know, agree that there's a Palestinian identity, a Palestinian experience, a Palestinian need, and that they're a real human population here that must live here with us and find, just because I have these humanistic, universalistic values, then I'm automatically rejected by a lot of people that are in the far extremes. And I think these far extremes are really, you know, built and, and grow out of trauma that they kind of, you know, oppose one another. And I must be against the other side in order for me to survive because that's my enemy. And the way to transcend that is to no longer see them as the enemy. But I do want to touch on, let's say, for example, the African-American black community, uh, people of color, whatever someone chooses to identify with in the United States. And we see the shift within pop culture uh, when it comes to how that community is perceived within the US. 
And there's definitely still systematic racism within the US, but let's look at pop culture, right? If you go 70, 80, 90 years ago within the US, the culture was very racist and most people had racist ideas. And even if you had no racist idea, an individual saying something racist would get away with it because that was just the norm. Today in intellectual spaces on college campuses, if you say something racist, you're ostracized and that's normal. If you say something sexist, you're ostracized and that's normal. You know, you say things against a minority community, that's normal. So there's been a shift within the pop culture amongst the younger generation and there's still a lot more work to do, but it is possible. So I think it is, it is also very possible between Israelis and Palestinians. And you look at other countries that fought wars for hundreds of years, like France and Germany. Today, you know, they don't relate to that anymore. It's been so long and they've been able to move forward. And, you know, they are living in a totally different movie than their ancestors were living in. So I do think we need to create a new movie. In my experiences uh, at Columbia University, when I opened the student uh, group that was, you know, fighting for Jewish rights in Israel and educating, we also added another element that really exposed those that were anti-Israel and not pro-Palestinian. And again, the reason I, I call these groups that were on campus claiming to be pro-Palestinian is because they never talked about Palestinian suffering when it came out of the context of Israel. They manipulated certain things. For example, two, three weeks ago, we had a Palestinian individual, again, this represents this individual, not the collective, that drove a car into a bunch of IDF soldiers and the IDF soldiers you know, shot him and he was killed. And everyone was talking about how IDF soldiers are, are killing Palestinians because of this example. And you know, it's, it's, it's taking the context out of it. This is, you know, if you don't want to call him a terrorist and you want to call this individual militant against another army force, Sababa, you can say that, but this is war. This is fighting. This is not, you know, a deliberate attempt to go and kill a Palestinian because he's Palestinian. So are there times where this has happened? Yes, and they must be condemned. But when we conflate issues, we manipulate issues, and we use them to kind of demonize and remove the humanity of the other side, I think that creates a lot of negativity and fuels the conflict that exists. So what we did on college campuses in order to change this narrative of if you're pro-Palestinian, it means you must be anti-Israel. And if you're pro-Israel, it means you must be anti-Palestinian. Is we started to bring conversations similar to the ones that we're having now uh, that were titled Beyond, Beyond Common Narratives. Uh, one of our first ones that we did is we brought a, a Palestinian individual who at the age of 15 stabbed an IDF soldier, um, sat 15 years in an Israeli prison, uh, learned English, learned Hebrew, uh, learned about uh, nonviolent movements like what Gandhi did uh, to the British Empire, and eventually joined an organization in Israel called Combatants for Peace. And for him, he's still very much so uh, anti-Israeli government policies and anti the IDF. And you know, he's not a tokenized Palestinian that speaks only on behalf of Israel, which unfortunately those exist on both sides, but he's a true activist for Palestinian rights, but no longer sees the path for us to live together as war and demonization of each other. And we brought a Jew living in Judea and Samaria together so naturally to the campus, they're supposed to be opposed to one another. So they're supposed to be against one another. But in reality, even though they disagreed on some issues like me and you disagree now, on the majority of how to move forward and to conceptualize our identities and to be able to understand and move forward, they agreed. And this shocked the campus because they didn't know that something like this can exist. So I think mm -hmm. if we want to shift pop culture, we have to provide something better. We have to provide something that actually works for both. For example, BDS resolutions, right? A lot of people that support BDS resolutions, although they're horrible, they feel like this is the only thing that exists that I can support to help Palestinians, which I truly want to do. So what if Israelis and Palestinians were able to create 
solutions and resolutions on a college campus to divest from certain companies that profit from both of our conflicts and both of our suffering, to be against the US foreign aid to Israel, which profits from this conflict, to fight against the characters of our story that are actually profiting from us suffering, and to invest in the humanization of both populations, to invest in the understanding of both of our sufferings, to invest in the future of our populations. If we offer something better, I think naturally that would put, be put aside. And I think there will always be individuals that are hateful. There will always be individuals that are racist, that are sexist, that are anti-Semitic, that are Islamophobic, that are anti-Arab, that are anti all sorts of populations, but they have to be kept in the shadows. They have to feel that if they air out their opinions, that they will be socially ostracized because I do believe in freedom of speech. But I also believe in the consequences of freedom of speech, which is social reaction to that speech. You know, someone no longer wanting to be associated or friends with an individual that has such horrible views. That's also freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And we need to create a reality where if someone says something against Palestinians or someone says something against Israelis, that they are ostracized by both of our communities. And I think the best way to do that is to start to humanize each other, understand our, our, our experiences, our identities, and focus on how do we move forward from here. Because at the end of the day, everyone thinks that they're a good guy. Everyone supporting, you know, Palestinian rights think they're doing things to support Palestinian rights. Everyone thinking supporting Jewish rights in Israel are thinking they're doing things to support, you know, Israel and the good cause. But we need to realize that both of our movements are fundamentally intertwined. Mm -hmm. And there is no success of either movement without the success of both movements together. And the real conversation is how to transcend this conflict and be able to build that reality for our kids to live in. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean... Have you heard of a novel called Alt Neuland? I have not. I've so, so, that, so if you, if you, uh, it, the English translation is Old Newland. It was a novel. It was a fictional novel written by Herzl, you know, the, one of the founders of, um, of Zionism, um, and it described uh, a fantasy in which. Uh, the Jews would come and uh, live alongside the population and bring technology and 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 it's unfortunate that it, it wasn't as popular as you know Judenstadt. Um you know but that something like that you know in the spirit of of coexistence and everything like that that's what we have to sort of recreate a uh, 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 a new type of narrative and I, I mean like most most Jews don't know about Alt Neuland, and I and so I would expect Arabs not to know about it as well. There was some that they, I mean, like I said, the the displacement of Palestinians was an unintended consequence, and the biggest misconception from the Arab side is that they viewed it as an intentional demographic reversal. You know, so so that's that's one of the key things that we have to unpack. Uh, as well as considering Jews as as as, as our own, um, you know, uh, you were displaced from here by the Romans, you know, and 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 survived uh, miraculously for centuries in a very anti-Semitic environment, you know, far worse, uh, you know, um, you know, comparatively to to the Islamic world, um, and now since everything has sort of happened, you know. Um, and looking back at the past, we may have disagreements, but we certainly align on what needs to happen or the attitudes that we need to take going into the future. Um, and, and that's where it's our primary objective at the moment in terms of what you and I can do is literally just come together and outnumber the radicals on both sides. That's what we need to do. Um, 
you know, Amen, brother. I'm with so, you on that. So, you know, in terms of what it would look like in the future, um, we could, you know, look at other models, right? Uh, like uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland. It's pretty much uh, two countries without no borders. And eventually that, that could be that could be one of the potential uh, solutions, you know. The, the first thing that we need to do is sort of connect the major Arab cities that are together, maybe create one contiguous state, connect up, you know, um, connect up those, those cities. And then after, you know, five, ten years when the narrative changes, people are less reactive, uh, more calm. Uh, we can go to a, some sort of stage two uh, where, where we could have a, something like a Good Friday Agreement, you know, where uh, Palestinians like myself may not be able to return to Haifa and demographically replace that, but there's plenty of room in Ramallah or Jericho where we could be given an opportunity to start, you know, start fresh and um, live in two separate legislatures, but live as one country if that makes sense you know someone from northern ireland uh, who has a british passport votes in british elections you know can travel um uh, can travel to to ireland without going through a checkpoint um and uh, maybe that's a model that we could sort of base it on i mean like i said one state or two states I can't dictate that. The Palestinians can't dictate that. We literally do not have the power to dictate the solution. The, 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 what we can do, though, is just give you the KPIs um, that, 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 that um, you know, uh, in terms of like how to, um, you know, what we need to, I guess, start moving forward, which is like... A can I ask you a question? Yeah. What do you think that your population and collective needs to start seeing from Israelis in order to be open-minded that we can be ones that come together to create a solution? Like, you need to be able to feel that we identify with your struggles, understand your struggles, want to end those suffering. Like, what exactly do you need to start seeing from Israelis? And not only the government, I mean the populations, for Palestinians to be more open to this idea um, that we can live together. To be frank, frankly speaking, this, this conversation right now, you know, there needs to be more of this, you know, not, not just, you know, just here, but like with, 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 with more people that that's, that's what needs to happen. The goal now is just to outnumber the radicals for Jews and Arabs that want to coexist, to come together and outnumber the radicals on both sides. That's, that's, that's step one. You know, yeah, I think uh, to, to all the Israelis and, and Zionists and Jews or those who support Israel that are watching this now live or watching it later, in my experience, and I've had, you know, countless of conversations uh, with Palestinians, whether in Judea the West Bank, Palestinians from refugee camps, Palestinians that were born in diaspora, and every time that I engage with them, at the end of the conversation, we actually agree way more on the amount that we disagree. And the fact that I acknowledge their experience, that I acknowledge their identity, that I acknowledge, it opens them up to hearing my narrative, my identity, and my needs also as a human being living in the land. And I truly think that is the key to be able to move forward. You know, there's the, the archetype story of uh, Isaac and Ishmael, the father of the, uh, you can say, Arabs and the father of the Jews, which are both children of, of Abraham. And they're opposed to each other, that war with each other. And eventually at the end of Abraham's life, Ishmael and Isaac come back together to bury their father in Hebron, which Hebron 
comes from the word chibur or haver, the connection or the friend, uh, the connection of the people to the land, right? Which connects both of us maybe today. And the question is, if it took the death of Abraham to bring us together, what is the death of Abraham in this generation that allows to come together? And what I think it is, is the uh, egos that we have and the images that we have that the other is the enemy. And once we're able to eradicate that within our minds and within our hearts, we will be able to see the other as the human being and the brother or cousin that they are and be able to come together. You mentioned earlier um, about the conversation of justice. And you know, there, there's often these sayings like, no justice, no peace, right? And I do think that that's a really true statement because what is peace at the end of the day? Peace defines a time where two or more parties are not fighting each other because they either don't have a reason to fight or there's no current incentive to fight. But if you have peace, you can have war tomorrow or the next day or a few years. And to really have long lasting peace or to achieve peace, you first need to have justice. And justice is needed for both sides. And to cause uh, an injustice, to, to, to undo an injustice is not by doing another injustice. So I do think that we can one day have Palestinians being able to move back into Yafo, into Akko, into Haifa, and to come back and to live in these areas too, the same way Jews should be able to go to Bethlehem, and to Shechem, and to Hebron, and to Yericho, and all these places that are important for us. I think that's both of our aspirations is to be able to live in the full land. But can we create something that is thinking outside of the box? Not, not taking things that have existed in previous countries, maybe being inspired by certain systems that exist in like Switzerland, certain systems that exist elsewhere, and then applying it, but with a twist of understanding what are the needs now, what are the needs in the future, what are the injustices now, what are the potential injustices in the future, and how do we build a system that works for both? And to be honest, the only hypothetical solution that I've heard until now, of course, there could be other solutions, and I do think that there will be other solutions created with time with uh, many smart intellectual individuals on both sides coming up with this idea, is a federation slash emir plan. So it's not a one state, it's not a two state, uh, it, it's, it's a one civilization. It's a civilization where we can both exist and remove the physical barriers and also remove the psychological barriers that we've adopted where we can be able to live together. Within different. Oh. Hold, hold on, Jason, you're muted. Sorry. It's bugging out now. Yeah, yeah. apologies. I, I, notifications off, but for some hold reason. on. Yeah, we got a bug. Okay, we're good. Yeah, sorry. I, it says the notifications are off, but some reason it just keeps on beeping. Um, yeah, look, I, um, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that, and it's also not to be like viewed with with indifference. I mean, really, I mean, other than um, something with two states, having a sort of one-state solution without you know, putting people in their own sort of separate legislatures. Like let's say if we were to be one country and, and we were to have all equal rights and citizenships and everything like that, then, you know, like it, it wouldn't be a distinct Jewish um, majority state, you know, would it turn into, and, and, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to take away you know, a Jewish state. You know, I don't want to take that away. I don't, I, like I said, I don't think that the answer to being replaced is to go and replace, you know, another people. And to make it into something like New Zealand, where you have a binational state, where both people are represented in the coat of arms, and there's even like a Maori verse in the national anthem. I, I don't think this would, this would be an appropriate solution because it would defeat the purpose of having a Jewish state. 
you know, um, a Jewish state like can only exist with a manageable Arab minority, and that is one of the challenges that we we have to face. So, what does it, where does that leave us? I mean, the second option is back to two states, and then, like I said, we could have something like a Northern Ireland Ireland type of arrangement, and and, and also like I mean, Palestinians like. You know, uh, we we should have the right to nationalism. I mean, like I, th I saw one of the comments is like, why didn't why did Palestinians only call themselves Palestinians after '67? They didn't. They started calling themselves Palestinians in 1908 and in 1911 with the newspaper called Palestine. You can you can you can Google that up. And so there there has been aspirations of a Palestinian, um, you know, uh, a, a nation and. I mean, I don't think that, I mean, we don't have the power to say, oh, you can't deny that from us. Like, we, we, we're not, we don't have the power to really, really do anything. Like I said, we can only give you the KPIs in terms of freedom of movement, access to a port, access to an airport, a currency, all that sort of stuff, uh, representative government, um, and how we deliver that solution it can be something that, you know, um, can 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 happen naturally. We're not at that stage yet. We're we're at the stage now where what needs to happen is the normalization in terms of communicating with each other, understanding each other's narratives, and seeing each other as cousins. Um, uh, and then we can work. Um, and then and then we can work um, towards what that's you know what that's going to look like. The focus now should just be outnumbering the radicals on both sides who sort of hog up all the space on social media. And, and say, you know, insensitive or triggering things using triggering language, and then normal people would just react to that and then become polarized. You know, uh, I think people like us should be actively calling um, people like that out on our respective sides and to push for dialogue that, um, that consolidates both narratives, you know, so we can create a new narrative uh, that could eventually lead to a greater future because I do believe there's a bigger picture to this whole solution and um, as I mentioned before to you guys um, it, it's it's Israel's place in the Middle East um, and, and 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 with its neighbors I think once this once this problem or once this conflict is solved and you don't and you no longer have stateless people uh, living in the land then the, a greater problem gets solved, which is Israel's relations with the Arab states. Uh, and, and that's when we can really talk about serious economic development and prosperity within that region. So those are my thoughts on that. You know, there's someone Great. in the comments that, that asked, uh, that said, um, would you, they're asking me, would you take the responsibility for all the terror and deaths of Israelis if you would remove the wall? And I just want to respond to that. Do you really think, Adam, that there is a future uh, for our civilization where we will forever exist with walls dividing our land? And I'm not saying remove the wall tomorrow. I'm saying let's remove the psychological walls that exist within our minds so that we can remove those physical walls and we can be able to live together. And I do want to talk about uh, that potential federation uh, idea because it seems like a lot of people don't understand what I mean by federation or or emirate plan. And again, before I, I you know touch on this idea, it's a hypothetical solution. It's a solution that we need to start conceptualizing as a potential 
to start maybe even giving us fuel and energy to find other solutions that may be similar or inspired from the ability to think outside of the paradigm of one state, two state solutions. And the, the Federation plan, basically the, the, the idea stems from Israeli and Palestinian activists that have sat down together and come up with this plan. And it figures out how um, Israelis that have different aspirations than Palestinians can coexist. And so if you look at Palestinians, something that's very important to Palestinians that isn't Israelis is localized control. Meaning that the, the community or the town of Hebron doesn't want to be under the PA, doesn't want to be uh, lumped in together with uh, Nablus, with Shem. They, they want to have more of a sense of a local autonomy. That's something very important for a lot of Palestinians that to Jews isn't. Most Israelis do not know who the mayor of their cities are. are and even if they know who the mayors of their cities are, they definitely don't know what the mayor does within that city. And so for us, what's more important is this nationalistic uh, you know, control of like the, the region and the borders. And for Palestinians, what's most important, which is also national, but more important, so the local control. So what if we took uh, areas within the Judea and Samaria West Bank and we created federations, let's say we create 10 federations, 12 federations, eight federations, depending on how many communities want to have their own local autonomy. And we had two branches of government. And this would be one country with no physical walls. People are able to travel and have equal rights to access. And these federations would have more control over their local regions, meaning more control over their security forces, more control over how they invest in their infrastructure and their economy, more control over how they do their education or even civil laws, uh, more control about certain things culturally within that federation. And the two branches of governments, one would have more control nationally, and one would have more control on the individual level, on the on the domestic uh, federation level. That doesn't mean they wouldn't have a say in the national level, they would just have less of a say. And the reason why this could potentially work is because if I as a Jew were to move to Hebron, I would now no longer vote for the branch of government that is representing the national, I would vote for the federation. And if a Palestinian were to move to Akko or to Yafo or someplace in Israel, they would vote for that branch of government and not this branch of government. And so you have a balance of powers where you're giving more and less for the needs of each, which allows the country to be Jewish enough for Jews and have this Jewish majority and feel, but allows the Palestinians to have equal rights and education and opportunities and access to movement and even move if they want to to other places and also fulfill their needs of having real localized control where they feel they've achieved their level of self-determination. And it's one country and we're able to coexist. Now, this solution could have many flaws and could be something that will be completely scrapped and never work. But it's a very interesting way of thinking of the solution by first focusing on the needs that both have, which are different, and the, the suffering that both face, which are different, and trying to find a solution based on that, which is why I never talk about one state or two state. I always talk about one civilization because it leaves room for the generation to come up with that solution within the civilization <laughs> and land where Bizat Hashem, inshallah, we can all live on. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. I've also, can we move to audience? Um, Jason, I'd like to move to audience questions. If you do, if you would like to respond, just try to keep it within two minutes. Um, in the meantime, friends, begin to ask questions. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I was actually going to, I, I, I like what you said, Rudy. Um, and I mean, like, like uh, I think that's a you know very creative idea and everything and definitely something that could be looked into as a, a viable way forward. Uh, among you know the other ideas 
Um, I, but our, our, our focus and our priority at this point in time is doing things like this and coming together and just finding our Semitic cousins on the other side so that we can outnumber the radicals, right? Um, I read in the comments as well that, you know, um, if, if, if Palestine was to be a state, I wouldn't be able to live in it because I'm Christian. And I'd just like to remind, you know, the, the, the audience that sort of has that sort of ideology um, that, you know, uh, in 730 CE, right, the, the Caliph Umar bin Khattab, had a truce with Sophronius, which was the Christian patriarch of, of, of Jerusalem. You know, that, that sort of was the basis of allowing, you know, the, the, the coexistence of, or, or the, you know, the existence of Christians and, and Jews as a minorities. In fact, the Muslims allowed Jews of the Middle East to go back to Jerusalem during that time. So I think that's another misconception as well. I just like to remind that person that for the last 1,400 years, we existed in relatively good peace um, uh, with, with with our Arab Muslim cousins and like in fact like I'd probably be closer uh, I, I would consider you more of a, a, a brother uh, Rudy that than a cousin because because of, of the virtue of me being of Christian Palestinian descent um, uh, of, of the the descendants of Jews that weren't exiled by the Romans all, all, all we had to do was make our religion real Roman friendly and pay tax to Caesar and we could stay. Because after after 66, after the revolt, um, those uh, who followed the Messiah were sort of uh, left Judaism and were, were, were I guess, uh, banished as, as Gentiles. And so when the Romans came back and arrived at the villages of where the first Christian movement uh, started, they said, hang on, who are you guys? You look Jewish, but you don't act Jewish. What's going on? And I said, and the Christians were like, oh, oh no, we, uh, uh, we got, they banished us. We're, 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 we, got, we got banished from Judaism. We're not, we don't, we follow, you know, the Messiah. And so they're like, okay, well, you know, well, let's have a look at your religion. Let's make it real Roman friendly and uh, and make the Jews look bad, like as if they, they sentenced uh, Jesus to crucifixion, and you guys can stay. And so we stayed under that, you know, that condition and lived live together. But like if we, if, if we go back in uh, history, our ancestry connects at some point in time. And so therefore some of the Palestinian population, the more in particular the Christian population, and some Muslims may descend from people that were Christian, that descend from ethnic Jews. You know, we, we all belong in this land. No one should be made to leave the land, even, even may, may be made to leave the land. And, and, and that's, that's the sort of solution that, that I want to uh, work towards. Yeah, I, I want to I, I somewhat agree with you, Jason, but I also want to give some pushback. So yeah, there's many, there's many Palestinian Christians that currently live in perfect harmony with their Muslim neighbors. So there is signs that that Christians can live amongst Palestinians. That being said, there has been a, a declining Christian population in the Middle East for around the past 200 years. So th there seems to have been some kind of ethnic cleansing of sorts. We see it's we see it in Lebanon, we see it in Egypt, uh, we've seen it in Syria, Iraq, and it, it's possible. I'm open to this explanation. It's possible that it's a result of uh, Western imperialism, right? For the past hundred years, initially England. And then uh, the United States have kind of been, in their own sense, occupying the entire Middle East for their own 
uh, political gains. It's possible that that has triggered anti-Christian sentiment. I'm open to that, but we we need to be honest with the reality that being a Christian in the Middle East and being in a minority in most places of the Middle East is not so it's not great. Um, I'm not convinced that would be true with Palestinians because we do see Christian Palestinians living there, but we do need to be honest about a, a difficult reality that currently exists in the Middle East. Sure. I mean, I'm just specifically re referring to the Balad Sham or the Levant region. So like your Maronites in, in, uh, in Lebanon, I mean like Syria before, you know, things got messy there. Christians lived in relatively good, good, good peace. And, 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 in, in what was, um, you know, the, the British mandate of Palestine, um, yeah, we, we, we lived in relatively good peace. I mean, as opposed to, to, to Christianity, which in Europe literally wiped out every other minority and treated Jews like crap. Europe had a thriving pagan religion once upon a time. Like, it's gone, you know? So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's nowhere near the same as the experience in, in the Muslim world. And, and, and really this, this caricature of the, of, of, a, of the Jew being... Uh, bent on world domination and in control of finances uh, and, and starting wars. That was a distinctly European caricature. And it didn't show up in the Middle East until 1917, after the, after the Balfour Declaration, when the Muslim world flipped from being tolerant somewhat, you know, of, of, of minorities um, to being paranoid. And then all those atrocities happened, and all forms of violence is 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 uh, is bad. But yeah, or, or like I said, we can only we can only move forward and outnumber the radicals on on both sides by coming together. I can't stress that point enough. Great uh, question. This is for both of you. I yeah. saw Adam asked it earlier. How do we define justice? And, and let me just build on this. It seems like often people, when they speak of justice, they're actually speaking of vengeance. It's about getting back. It's so. So many many Palestinians would say their justice for them is for the land to be um, clear of Jews. Now, I'm not saying this is the majority. It's just it, it's a narrative we do here. They see that as justice. I would say that's that's vengeance. So, w what is justice exactly? What do you guys think? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, an injustice being committed to undo an injustice does not create justice. So vengeance is definitely not the answer to having justice. Um, to have justice is to undo the current injustices that exist, uh, and in a way that doesn't cause pain and harm to another community. And there are many injustices that Palestinians experience today. Uh, for example, not having access to movement, not having access to resources, uh, not having access to great jobs and to education and to access to voting and access of representation for a military that controls them and, you know, not having access to, to many things that are basic needs. And even in Gaza, like there are certain times uh, throughout every day that there's no more electricity, that there's water cuts, you know, these are injustices. Uh, rights that people should have, freedoms that people should have, realities that people should live that do not exist. And to have justice is to create a new reality where those injustices end. 
um, and there are injustices that Israelis experience, that we cannot go and live in many places within uh, Judea and Samaria, that we deal constantly with terrorism or wars, that all of us have experienced someone that was killed uh, because we're Jews, that this entire world constantly rejects us, de delegitimizes us, uh, demonizes us, uh, you know, and, and tries to claim that Israel doesn't have a right to exist. And every five feet that you go, you have to fight for your, your right and you have to, you know, fight just to, to have a right to breathe and to identify as who you are. Uh, there are injustices committed on both sides and that are experienced by both sides and to fight for justice is to do, undo those, but not undo those in a way that you're committing another injustice. So I heard, uh, you know, not too long ago, a few years ago, there was a, a kind of a movement to incentivize Palestinians to move to Jordan. We're going to pay them and they're going to move. And I think that this is committing another in act of injustice. Palestinians should not have to move. They should have a right to live here uh, and to live here as equals with dignity, uh, with respect, uh, with the ability to achieve their greatest of aspirations and to fulfill, you know, the lives that they seek to live. And the way that we end injustice is not by committing another injustice. That's my opinion on what justice means. I'm with you on that. Mm -hmm. Jason, anything you'd like to uh, add? Yeah, I mean, look, quite simply, justice for me means you and someone else are treated the same way. Like me and you over speed on the freeway, you get a hundred dollar fine and three demerit points. I get a hundred dollar fine and three demerit points. You know, uh, not like uh, you. I get a three hundred dollar fine and you get a one hundred dollar fine. It's justice is about a level playing field. You know, receiving the same legal, political, institutional treatment. That to me is how I would define justice in short. Cool. Um, so this is actually something that I struggle with myself to, to make sense of. I, I wonder to myself, if we, like Jason, what you just explained, have equality under the law, is that enough to really, you know, begin the healing process that needs to happen of both populations in order to build the trust necessary? And it's quite possible that that, that is the case, but I have a feeling that we need more forms of justice and I, I mentioned this at the beginning but reconciliation some kind of reconciliation process seems essential and i i think this is true also with black america right now i think an essential part of you know their healing process is some some kind of national reconciliation process so first i want to know what you both think about this and and what could reconciliation be it could be first of all acknowledging the injustices committed towards one another the past hundred plus years acknowledging that it happened not not um not not you know pretending it didn't exist like is often done with the holocaust like is often done with the nakba you know uh, often the injustices that uh we faced as as populations are trivial trivialized and ignored so i'd say a, a first and important part of reconciliation is acknowledge it I would then say maybe we have some kind of uh, a day of unity, uh, brother and sister unity day that really celebrates the diversity of our land, how Israel and Palestinians, despite our differences, despite our difficult past, can come together and uh, live as one civilization, as Rudy said. So these are just two ideas. I want to know if you guys, A, think reconciliation is important, and if you do, B, what you think can be involved in this reconciliation process.
Um, you know, to address the reconciliation, I definitely think it's a, you know, a necessary part to be able to move forward. I haven't heard that idea of a day that unites both of us that we'd both be celebrating. I think that's an amazing idea. Mm. Um, I had proposed another idea that I had heard previously from someone else of the Tikva, which is our national anthem, having a version in Arabic that talks about the struggles and aspirations of the Palestinians that almost sounds identical to the Hebrew that is saying at the same time. So we'd be singing a national anthem at the same time with a little bit shifted different words, but it's the same tune. So we'd all be singing it at the same time. Uh, that was an idea that I heard that I thought was pretty cool. And I think when we start thinking along this way of creating a reality that focuses on both, that it, that is the process. But that is, I think, step two. Step one is demystifying certain terms, certain identities like Palestinian, uh, like Zionist, like Israeli, like Jew, like Arab, like Muslim, demystifying these terms, giving them their humanity again, putting human faces to one another, building relations with one another, being able to speak to one another, being able to, when we speak, hear each other out and have love for one another. Uh, I think that is the first step. The second step is then to start creating structures and systems and, and realities that play into what we've now accepted into our hearts. And then as that evolves, well, we will have obstacles. We have, we'll have things that come up, but it's up to both of us to overcome those obstacles. So I agree mm -hmm. with uh, reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Jason, anything you'd like to add or next question? I, I sort of share the same, I share the same sentiment. So we Awesome. We could all agree that it's an important aspect to, uh, to the healing process, to the peace process. It's, it's focusing on reconciliation. Great. I'm going to pull up a question here by Eyad Mas, our brother from Hebron. Why do Israelis vote for Bibi for the fifth time in a row and for similar persons before it? How can Palestinians trust a right-wing voting nation? So it's, there's actually an interesting contrast because, not contrast, similarity. Many Israelis say, you know, Gaza, they voted for Hamas. How could we trust them? It's important to understand that when a nation has something to fear and you know, the Jewish population does have fear. Many won't like to admit it. We, you know, we have a very difficult history of persecution, of multiple genocides. And our short, our short history after once returning to this land has been met with violence and more violence and more violence. When a nation has fear, the leader who can alleviate those fears through being a strong and powerful and charismatic will generally win the elections. So I personally see Bibi's continued re-election as a result of, of Israelis firmly believing that he is the one who will protect us against our, our threat from our neighbors. And if you look at the platform that Bibi generally runs on, it's one of security, security, security. So I would say that that is the, that is the reason. Uh, Rudy, maybe you have a different insight on this. Yeah, I, I agree. In order for a right-wing government, especially in the structure that exists today within Israel, to be elected on security, you have to have a level of insecurity. So in a way, the conflict sort of doesn't become the priority to solve because it doesn't allow you to stay in office. Although I wouldn't blame the consequences of you know ethnic conflicts and the status quo on the right-wing government. Uh, in my opinion, they have definitely not done enough to change that reality. And I think the reason for why people are voting more to the right is because this is more of a pressing issue. And something that I'd like to see change within Israel is to remove this divide of right wing and left wing. 
because what the right wing and this is different within other countries what means right and left in america is not right and left in israel but for what's important for the right wing uh individuals within israel is a strong identity and a strong level of security and what's important for the left is strong values humanity and justice and for me these two ideas are part of the same collective image there they shouldn't be separate they shouldn't be one over another they should be both important and unfortunately within politics because we have a British uh, parliamentary system that is run on divide and conquer even with their foreign policies to the way that they govern themselves you have parties that are built of many different needs of different parts of the population that fight one another for power and that create a coalition to have power over another and that focus on short-term solutions to stay in power rather than finding a way to bridge the gaps between these parties and bring the populations together so i don't think the solution is going to come from the government i think the solution is going to come from the peoples and if we're able to start bridging these you know ideological tribes that we've become today right left religious secular ashkenazi spaladi israeli palestinian and start bringing them together into a new reality that allows all of them to live the fullest of what they need, then we can be able to move forward. So it's not because Bibi isn't elected because of what he, you know, you can claim he's done against Palestinians or so on. He's elected because he's seen as the leader that can protect uh, the population the most. And for you to understand that, there were days where every single day a bus was blowing up in Israel. There are days where every single day there's a rocket being uh, raining on our heads. Uh, there were days where every single day someone is being stabbed or run over by, by cars. This is an experience that every Israeli has gone through. I've lost four friends in one summer. I've lost another friend a few years ago. Um, I don't know one Israeli that doesn't know someone that was killed from this conflict. So when you have that reality of pain and suffering and danger, the first thing that you want is, is safety. And then you care about the other things, for the most part, for the majority of the population. And that's why individuals like Bibi have gotten elected. He's done some good things for the country as well. For example, the economic situation, uh, relations with countries in Africa. There are good things that Bibi has done that people elect him for, for that as well. But I don't think he's an individual um, that at this point in time will help the population move forward. And I do think we need to start empowering people not one not two but a generation on both sides to start thinking of how do we move forward and once we do that i think we'll, the answers will reveal themselves mm. anything you'd like to add jason yeah so i mean look i, I can't really speak to right-wing israeli politics um but i can speak to um the rhetoric that exists on on the palestinian side which is the the sort of no compromise from the river to the sea palestine will be free and people go around chanting this you know in the main square in new york and then what happens is from the river to the sea there are more you know the the the, the, the i don't want to use this word now settlements but just for a lack of a better of a term a resettlement for now um there are more resettlements and that that's what happens so on the palestinian side it's not like we have you know, a representative government where there is, uh, you know, right and 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 left wing. There, there's, there's literally, like, Hamas and the and and the PLO, um, and they only represent their their um, their relevant populations. I mean, for me, it's just forget about the river to the sea. Let's just stick with our major town centers. You know, they're left untouched. 
There's no Jewish settlement inside Jericho or Ramallah. I mean, there is inside Hebron, but that's a bit of an exceptional case. But I mean, for now, um, yeah, let's let's. Uh, my, my idea is just to connect them up, um, you know, uh, with with uh, perhaps like flyovers or tunnels, and 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 then that way they don't have to get in the mix. I mean. I mean, what what I'm trying to say is that if we had a if we had a state, if we actually had some sort of state, then that we we could address these problems. And I think with security and stuff, that the reason why Hamas exists is because of the conflict. You remove the conflict, you essentially remove Hamas. You know, in terms of the and the PA, yeah, and and the PA. I mean, if you look at, um, yeah, I mean, th this is going into sort of theory now or theoretical but something which in, in my due diligence of this thing I, I really like the idea of, of of the world Zionist Congress as a way to represent you know people on around the world that come from Jewish descent um, and uh, that that existed before the internet it existed through the through the mailing system and I think perhaps something like that needs to happen on the Palestinian side so that voices in the diaspora can also be heard like mine and have some form of, of representation. I mean, once we move towards a, uh, a state, we could sort of, then we could sort of move towards a unified, uh, a moderate government that, that, that we could start, you know, start functioning like a, a, a sovereign people. Um, but but like now, I don't think that we have the, the, the power to do that. The, the, the power is, you know, heavily on, on, on the other side. So the best that we could offer are just the KPIs, as I mentioned before, um, and, and a way to sort of work towards that. However, that looks like, as I said, you know, whatever works, I don't mind as long as, as long as we're, as, as long as what we do not normalize is the statelessness of the people on the land. Great. Um, so, before we wrap up, firstly, I want to thank you both again. And I want to thank the audience because I've seen a tremendous evolution in even how the audience engage in, engages in dialogue. It's way more respectful. It's way more understanding. And I even see friendships being built here between Israelis and Palestinians. Mm -hmm. uh, we are doing this dialogue, the three of us, but it's way beyond what we are doing. Uh, it's everybody watching. You have the power to impact change. The, the, and Ru Rudy mentioned this earlier that we shouldn't leave it in the hands of the government. Recognize that every single individual, every single one of you have the ability to impact another person. You have the ability to reach out to someone on, on the other side, hear their story, and in turn they will open up to hear, hearing your story. And that is one of the best ways to build a unified narrative and come together towards common ground. So again, thank you to the audience for being here. Another reminder that if you want to get in contact with any of us, our contact information is in the description. If you like this content, please subscribe to this YouTube channel. And with that, I will give Rudy and Jason uh, last words if you'd like to. So thank you again, Adolf, for, for doing this and for investing so much of your time and energy and passion into helping us move forward. Uh, it's so important, the work that you do, and I hope to see you grow and advance uh, doing this with time. Uh, thank you, Jason, for being such a brave voice um, and a passionate individual and being able to speak with me, to share with me your experiences, your narrative. 
uh, your your vision of the future. I hope we uh, remain friends and brothers and cousins and are able to help enlighten both of our populations to be able to have relations like me and you do, uh, where we can have conversations and even sometimes disagree, but be able to you know focus on how we move forward. Uh, and yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, they can reach out on Facebook or on Instagram. Um, part of a movement in Israel called Habayit, which unites uh, Israelis and Palestinians together, local activists, to be able to transcend the current realities that we live in. Um, if you guys want to get involved, check it out. It's called The Home, Habayit. Um, and we do a lot of events for both Israelis and Palestinians together. And I, you know, I'm very appreciative of this opportunity to come on here and to speak with you. And I hope to see many more, not of just me and you, but of other people uh, from our communities as well. Yeah, well, um, yeah, no, thank you very much again, Adar, for your passion and putting this platform so uh, Palestinians like myself can have our, uh, have our space, you know, um, in terms of this discussion. And also thank you, Rudy, for your efforts in trying, in, 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 in trying to close the gap between our peoples. I think that it's a, it's a very, very uh, good thing and a beautiful thing in that matter to see um, Semitic cousins uh, come together um, and acknowledge the need for coexistence and to aspire to have a prosperous future together. I, I really think that this is the way forward and, and, and it all starts with, with us coming together like we are now and outnumbering the radicals on both sides. Thank you guys so much, Brother Jason, Brother Rudy. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, for the viewers, I'm going to remain on for another 10-15 minutes just to do little solo stuff. It's a new tradition we've been doing. But uh, to the guests, again, thank you so much, and I look forward to having you both on again in the near future. Yeah. All right. Oh, what a session, guys, huh? That was honestly, in my opinion, one of the most exciting sessions we've done. Lots of insightful stuff. I always leave these sessions, although they are long, I always leave them uh, with more hope than when I came in. Uh, I, I've begun to stay on a little longer once the session is done, just to kind of chat. Uh, it's an opportunity if anybody wants to ask me questions or give feedback on the session. Uh, we could also dive into topics that do not involve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Last week, we spoke about veganism. We spoke about woke culture in America. We spoke about LGBT rights in the Jewish community. So we can do stuff like this if you would like. Um, if not, you know, I can sign off here, but I see that there's still a fair amount of people here. So I, I do want to give you guys the opportunity to continue this dialogue. Yeah, so Ian, I want to shout you out. I mean, I disagree with a lot of what you say, but I think that's good. Um, but you're like the anti-vegan of the group. But I hope that um, the response I gave last week at least gave you a little bit of what to think about. Um, get lucky. So I am currently up north in Kfar I, uh My mom lives here, but I generally reside in Tel Aviv. I've resided in Tel Aviv for the past 12 years, but I was born in New York and grew up in New Jersey. I'm a dual citizen. And I actually want to say, Eyad, our brother from Hebron, he told me, Eyad, I hope you're still here, but you mentioned earlier that your family initially were Lithuanian Jews. 
and they moved to Hebron. Well, my family actually moved from Lithuania in 1812 to Hebron, so I'd actually be interested in knowing if we are somehow related. So Ayad, if you're still on, reach out to me. That's actually very interesting. Um, Ophir, I'm going to bring this on. Look, Ophir says you need to cure yourself of this lefty idea that the left is somehow more peaceful and morally superior. It is not. So, Ophir, I need to tell you, I see your comments a lot, and almost half of them have the word lefty on it. If The more you view terms, the world in terms of right and left, the less accurate your understanding of the world is going to be. Not everything that you disagree with is lefty. Please accept that. There's such a wide diversity of, of opinions. The spectrum is vast and it can't all fit into the left-right category. What I don't even identify as a lefty, although I am definitely a liberal human being, but what I will tell you about me saying the left is peaceful, currently, if you look in today's political landscape, those who are more likely to support war happen to fall on the right of the political spectrum both in Israel and the United States. This is where most of my experience with right and left comes from. So again, <laughs> so again, you know, this is from my experience. The right generally is more likely to support war and military militarism. When you see peace protests, the majority of people there are considered left. Morally superior, that's a different discussion. Um, I think there's great aspects of right-wing ideology and left-wing ideology, but again, it's so unspecific. There's so little you can understand from breaking up the world into this right-left paradigm. So I would suggest to you to stop seeing left as your enemy. It's not this big boogeyman. There's billions of people on this world. Each one sees the world slightly different. Try to just see the individual and get to know their views without categorizing into some binary political system, which just doesn't, it's inaccurate. Yeah, I guess Ophir, uh, he he got a, sorry if I offended you, bye. I, I, look, I, I'm happy you come, I'm happy you listen. It's just everything you say is lefty, lefty, lefty. It's like, come on, bro, let's let's evolve past that, brother. Adam, thank you for the question. Adar, I appreciate what you do. My suggestion would be that you find more places where your guests disagree in a hard way. Um, I, you know, I actually agree with you. I agree with you. It seems like something about the vibe of this discussion. We see the sides. There are, there are a fair amount of disagreements, but there's no hard disagreements. Um, in order for that to happen, maybe I need to bring guests who are less good at communicating, but I don't want to do that. But maybe I need to be a little bit more of an instigator of sorts and pick out the areas of disagreement and, and highlight those. And, I'm definitely open to do that, so I appreciate that feedback. Um, oh, Corona. Hi, Tina. Thanks for the question. What can you tell us about the current Corona protest? Do you think we will have another lockdown? Corona is very tricky. I want to I wanna just break this down in a more abstract way. Viruses have potential to wipe out humanity. Let's just start with that. That's a possibility. Experts have been saying for decades that one of the greatest threats to humanity are viruses. So we need to be cautious of the threat of viruses and we do need to have a plan in place how to deal with viruses when they 
you know, when they come, when they come to life. That being said, we also need to be cautious of the fear of viruses allowing for governments to essentially take away more of our rights. What we've seen in some of the freest countries in the world, we've seen a slow erosion of our liberties and, and uh, Corona has sped this process up quite substantially. We've seen Israel now, the Shabak, which is the Israeli FBI is tracking people's phones to see if they leave quarantine. Um, again, this sets a very bad precedent. It's not that they didn't have the power to do this before, but it's now they actually opened a department to do this. And generally departments are not rolled back once Corona goes away. So what we need to do in the 21st century, where both viruses are a great threat, but so are governments and corporations eroding our liberties because they have more control over us because of technology and the data that they own, we need to we need to be very attentive we cannot take authority's word for it just because they said so we should question authority we should seek as many experts as possible to try to build an educated decision um but that being said we do need to accept because many people are trying to downplay the threat of corona we don't know enough about it it seems like although it doesn't have such a high death rate it's causing permanent heart lung and even brain damage. So we, we should take viruses seriously. What I think will happen in Israel. Now, this is, a, this is another nuanced way that, that we need to look at, at uh, what we do when it comes to viruses. So we need to take certain things into consideration. If we lock people down, we may be saving lives, but we need to weigh that with economic uh, the economic toll that plays, the psychological toll that plays, the toll it plays on our liberties, and then decide if lockdown really is the best approach. I actually don't have a clear answer. I would say with Corona, I, would, I don't think we need a lockdown. I think what we need is personal responsibility. We need social distancing. We should be wearing masks. Uh, we need to not be in close spaces with many people. And I think the severity of Corona allows us to approach it this way. That being said, there may be more serious viruses in the future where a complete lockdown might be the best approach. Also, keep in mind two contrasting approaches that both seem to be somewhat successful. New Zealand completely knocked locked down. I think for a month they have zero cases. Also a small population, not clear to work here. Sweden did no lockdown. They left things open. Japan did the same. South Korea did the same. No lockdown. People just took personal responsibility and they were able to defeat the virus with relatively little physical harm and relatively little economic harm. So there's no clear answer, but I want us to be very open to many possibilities. I don't want us to trust our media. I want us to question our government and I want us to, to try to get data from, from experts. Uh, that's my thoughts on Corona. Anything else? Get lucky. Thank you for your time. Good seeing you. Uh, Jeff Hirsch, Adar, if you're ever back in New Jersey, I run a community art space. Maybe come speak. So, Jeff, I would love to. I did a few speaking uh, gigs in the United States already, UCLA, UC Irvine. You could actually see that lecture on my YouTube. Uh, once the skies open back up, I plan to do a trip to the United States, and I would love to do some speaking gigs. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I will be in touch with you. Uh, I will be in touch with you about that.
Um, personal responsibility is a joke in America. Yeah, Jeff, I, you know, it, it's a tricky one. America lacks leadership. Um, every day, a slightly different message as what the threat really is. America has a very strong sense of individuality, which there are benefits to that. But in times of global pandemics, we need to come together as one. So I would say America is not not doing that well. I even tweeted back when America had 500 COVID cases that within a few months, they'd be the most infected country in the world. And partially it was just how Trump was dealing with it by not giving a clear message, but also just the American mentality I didn't think would deal with it so well. Tina, you say you're shocked about the situation in Tel Aviv. I assume you're saying how how people are living as if there's no concern. I actually want to bring something up about how Israelis have dealt with Corona, because I think it's interesting. It says something about Israeli society. Israelis are a very zero fucks given type of uh, society. Yeah, we do what we want. We we live like there's no tomorrow. We, we all feel brave, like we're not going to get sick. And we're very intimate and touchy-feely. We hug, we kiss, and whatnot. So at face value, you would say, okay, Israel will not deal with COVID well. If you look at how we dealt with it initially, we did an amazing job at at um, flattening the curve. We got down to low double-digit uh, infection rate every single day. And then people got over it and went out and partied like no tomorrow. This is actually says a lot about Israeli society. We have, we have to do this every few years when there's war. We are a zero fucks given type of society, but when there's war, we band together as a, as a unit and we do what needs to be done to overcome the threat we have. And, and sometimes we, you know, we stay home, you know, cl clubs and bars close down when there's rockets and stuff. So we're used to the mentality of, okay, guys, we need to do this. And then the second the war's over, we go out and we party like there is no tomorrow. We live life like there is no tomorrow. So that's exactly what happened with COVID. And it's kind of ingrained in Israeli uh, society to act that way. Question for anyone, is speaking Hebrew integral to living in Israel? I'd say it depends where you live, Jeff, if you live in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, uh, no. And I guess most places you live, you could get by, but I would say it would be very hard to feel truly as part of the society if you cannot speak the language. You're just so limited when it comes to, to work and, and social settings and you know, just feeling as part of Israeli society. So it's not a deal breaker. There are many uh, American expats or, or Olim, people who move to Israel who do not speak Hebrew and they get by. But I would suggest that if somebody wants to move here, that they should, you know, try to learn the language. It would just help them. David Moshe, Adar, can we keep track of things we're agreeing on? I actually love this idea. I have a plan to create a website called The Great Debate where we will uh, summarize each discussion on what was agreed on, what errors are still con contested. So somebody, if they just want, it won't be like an exact manuscript, but if somebody wants, they'll be able to kind of get a summary of each debate. I think that would be very useful, and uh, it is a plan that I'm working on. Uh, also, I, I want to put it out there. 
you know, I, I started the content on my YouTube just a few months ago. It's gone very well so far. I recently um, wrote one Facebook post looking to hire interns and a bunch of people reached out to me that they, they would like to intern. Now, I'm not in a position where I could pay people salaries, but people do see this as something positive, as something useful, and people are interested in getting involved. So if anybody here would, you know, would want to join as an intern and be part of this awesome content creation project, which actually aims to, you know, elevate people and inspire people, uh, reach out to me. You'll see my contact information in the, in the description. We have different tasks from outreach, meaning we need a book, book, um, the guests, uh, we have promotion and social media. We have video editing and graphic design. There's so many different roles to fill. And we're always looking for more people. So if anybody's interested, please reach out. So guys, I, I will say that that's it. Um, it was a pleasure. As always, I do not actually have any debates planned for next week as of now, but I'm pretty sure we will get one ready for Monday and Thursday. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, they will probably both be Israel-Palestine, but I just want you to know that I'm working on building awesome debates on Black Lives Matter, LGBT rights. I want to do socialism versus capitalism. I just want to hit all the topics. The whole idea is people can have a, a place to come to where they can see respectful dialogue on a wide array of issues and come and learn. Not only learn about the issues, but get inspired on how to have a productive and respectful Dialogue, it's something this world needs more of. We see so much dialogue happening in 280 characters on Twitter where everyone's just fighting. Uh, we see people on the news, you know, they get that quick 60-second soundbite. They just want to hit it, so they say something snarky. Instead of actually having a real conversation with nuance and understanding. So we're trying to change that paradigm. And, you know, I'm just one individual, but this platform would be absolutely nothing without all of you. So again, I, I truly appreciate your presence here and I look forward to the next one with you and know that I am always open to, um, to feedback and suggestions. Uh, let me actually answer this last question. Ian Lev, BLM, really? When I say Black Lives Matter, I don't mean the organization Black Lives Matter, which has anti-Semitic ties and seems to not have a coherent plan to how to achieve racial justice. But Black Lives Matter is not only an organization, it's also a movement. It's a racial justice movement. And regardless of what we think the solution is, we cannot deny that there have been tremendous injustices towards the black community in America. And the pain that exists within those communities is still severe. And it is definitely worth discussing racial justice, regardless of what your views are on Black Lives Matter, the organization. I hope that clarifies. Um, okay, now we're getting last minute questions. I'll keep going. Why not have more than three? I actually, I'm down to do four or five people. I'm thinking about it. Uh, I just, I need people to help me with the outreach and the bookings because when it all falls on my shoulders, you know, I just can't do it all. Also keep in mind, I make very little money on YouTube. I still need to work a day job. My goal is to be able to do content full time. In order for that to happen, I would need way more subscribers, way more viewers, but also I open a Patreon which essentially is a way for content creators and artists to earn money. If anybody here supports what I do, they can go to my Patreon. It's also in the description and they can donate $1 a month, let's say. Now $1 a month seems like not much, but if a few thousand people donate $1 a month, I can quit my day job, 
and I could do content full time and truly build an awesome platform with great content. So uh, if you want to support me on Patreon, that'd be greatly appreciate appreciative. You could see the link in the description. If not, obviously that's fine too. I just love the fact that you guys are here for these for these awesome conversations. We're getting, hold on. What is my day job? So for the past two and a half years, I have worked in high tech, specifically blockchain, uh, which whoever doesn't know blockchain, it's the underlying technology of Bitcoin and many other cryptocurrencies. It's a potentially transformative technology. What I do there is things from advisory, marketing, and business development. I enjoy it somewhat. I mean, I like transformative technologies. It's not my dream. I don't wake up in the morning and say, yay, let me go to work. But I do wake up in the morning and say, yay, let's do these debates. Let's do these discussions. So it's clear what my, what my true passion is. Activism, dialogue, conflict resolution. It just doesn't really pay until you get well established. So I'm going to build it slowly, but surely in the meantime, I'm going to work in blockchain. David Moshe, um, Adar, we can talk about the right wing's effort to counter peace initiatives. Unless we admit these things to ourselves, I don't think we will be able to acknowledge Palestinians as a people. Counter peace initiatives. Can you give Can you give me an example? What What, what exactly you mean by the right wing's counter counter peace initiatives? It's an interesting concept. I definitely think there is a major problem with how many Jews view Palestinians. Uh, racism is rampant in Israel. Uh, many will say it's justified given our difficult history. How can we not fear a population who has for the past hundred years been attacking us? Uh, we do need to empathize with, with that as well. The fact that some of the fear is legitimate, but it's true that there's not a national conversation amongst Israelis to be less racist. We don't call out racists when we see it generally. So yes, there's tremendous work that could be done to create an atmosphere that makes um, our Arab and Palestinian brothers and sisters feel more welcome and more included in society. I certainly uh, certainly agree with that. So Jordan, this is an interesting take. Many people say BLM takes the focus away from bigger problem, which is black on black violence. Is there a parallel there in Israeli conflict with priorities? So this is actually very interesting. I've been thinking about this. It's true that the majority of black people are killed by other black people. That's true. But for psychological reasons, we can't expect the same reaction. And let me explain. The relationship the black community has with the police is not one of citizen and protector. It's citizen and oppressor. Now, how does this tie to Israelis? How, do, how, how, how does this tie with Palestinians? How do Palestinians view Israelis, not as protectors, as oppressors? Now, innately, this is a biological reaction we have. We respond way more severely when we're attacked from external threats than to internal threats. Why? Well, if you think about it, you know, historically, an external threat was an existential crisis. An, ex an external threat could have wiped us out. 
generally internal threats can be uh, solved from within and it didn't create an existential threat. So you could see how we would evolve to respond way more harshly to external threat than from internal threat. So if we're wondering why the black community reacts more harshly to police killing and abusing black people than black people killing black people, it's deep-rooted psychology, and we should not try to hold the black community to a, a different standard because we don't hold any other population to a different standard. When a Palestinian kills an Israeli, it will be all, all over the news that the nation will mourn together. But when an Israeli kills another Israeli, most people don't even hear about it. So uh, black Americans are just acting within human nature to act more react more severely to an external threat than to an internal threat. So it's important to understand that if, if we want to solve conflicts, we can't always approach it with what seems rational, right? We say, well, more black people kill black people. That's, that's rational, but we need to understand that we didn't always evolve to be rational. We evolved in a way to keep us alive. Now, that's a whole other combination, evolving past our innate tendencies in order to become greater humans, we should all focus on that. It's a conversation that should be ha had. It's introspective work that we all need to participate in for sure, but we need to understand people's psychology and, and where it comes from. Um, hold on. Sorry, this is what I want to show. Adar, nothing personal but Crimea River. Uh, no offense taken, nothing personal. I don't, I don't even know where that comment comes from. I mean, does it sound like I'm complaining? I'm just trying to explain psychology behind conflict, but uh, I'm sorry if I offended you, Ian. Yeah, Jordan, I'd say this is a good point. Symbolic reasoning takes precedence over em empirical reasoning. I, I think we need room for both in society. So it's very hard to convince, to, to change a culture with r rationality and, and intellectualism. It's, it's not enough. That's not what has driven people for far too, too long. We need stories. We need to embed ideas into culture through stories and music and art. This this is an essential key to making change. It can't just be a bunch of smart people sitting in a room talking about ideas because in order for culture to change, we need everybody to change. And that happens through telling the right story. So yeah, um, I, I, I agree with what, what you're getting at. Uh, Deskew Dukefili, do you think a lot of Israelis are racist among themselves, not only with Palestinians? Um, yes, I do. Racism is an issue in Israel, not only towards Palestinians, but there's racism towards um, the Ethiopian community, and there's racism um, between the Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi and Sephardic community uh, as well. It's important to understand, you know, Israel has a challenging dynamic, I guess similar to America, that it's a melting pot. You know, many people see Israel as this just homogenous society, it's all Jews, we're all the same, but that's not the case, you know. We were exiled 2,000 years ago, we all went to separate parts of the earth, we all came back, we came back looking different, speaking different, eating different. So you have a huge melting pot in Israel, and generally, and this is also innate, I'm not trying to justify racism, but we do need to understand that 
group generalization and group bias is innate within us. So whenever you have a society with that's super multiculturalism, it seems like uh, you're going to have racism. I don't think Israel was founded on ideals of white supremacy by any means. Also, Jews technically aren't white, but having all these vastly different cultures and innately being uh, viewing groups as differently, it does create a problem of racism within Israel. And what I will say is there's not enough of a national conversation about the racism that exists. Uh, we're not doing much in our school systems to combat racism. Our politicians are doing very little. So there's a lot we can do to, to combat racism. And it is an issue. Hi, Spark of Love. Great to have you here. Uh, it is in the news. Think this is about Israel's Palestinians. Yes, I do have a BLM talk as well with an awesome guy named Christian Sito. If you guys are interested in the topic of Black Lives Matter, you know I could share certain certain thoughts I've had. I am actually very concerned with the movement as a whole because a I think they there's no coherent plan as to what the solution is. Right? We if you look at the movement. There's not much policy. You have some people mentioning this, some people mentioning this, but by and large, the movement is very focused on cultural change and it almost requires white people to have some kind of a cognitive revolution in order for black people to be liberated. That, that is kind of how many in the BLM movement are presenting it, that white people need to change, white people need to become anti-racist for things to get better. I think this is a potentially disastrous way to approach it. A, because there's so much policy that we can implement to make the conditions for black Americans better. And in doing so, we actually make the conditions for Americans better. So much of what is hurting black America also hurts white America, believe it or not. Socioeconomics, you have the middle class in America has been deteriorating for the past 50, 60 years. You have 70% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. This creates despair. And when there's not enough resources, people begin to turn on each other. So a lot of the racial division we're seeing, I believe is derived from a mindset of scarcity. So we need to focus on economics. And by and large, there's not much talk about socioeconomic change amongst the BLM uh, movement. In addition to that, here's a great policy. Do you know that currently, Public schools are funded by the property tax of that neighborhood. That is one of the most classist policies you can imagine. If you think about it, it says if you're poor, if you live in a poor neighborhood, what funds your school is the property taxes of a poor neighborhood. So poor neighborhoods have worse education than rich neighborhoods. That's unacceptable. The whole you know, ideal of America is that every individual has the same opportunity. But quite frankly, that's bullshit if you have different public schools for different neighborhoods. So we need to find a completely different approach to how we fund public schools. And while we're at it, we need to revolutionize K through 12 because public school, it's focused on the wrong things. It doesn't teach you good values as a human, how to understand your emotions, what your ego is, interpersonal communication. There's, you know, emotional intelligence. None of this is, is currently taught in school. So, you know, education is something I'd love to see people focus on. Another one is it, that that is uh, holding that is creating a lot of the pain in the black community. I think is lack of uh, political representation. That people feel like they cannot 
that voting doesn't matter, that it doesn't matter who they vote for, things stay the same. You know who else feels like that? Trump supporters. You know who else feels like that? White Bernie supporters. So there's a lot Americans can unify around that currently isn't being discussed. And a lot of the pain we see in the black community is connected to the pain we see in other communities uh, in America. That's not to say black Americans don't have their unique set of struggles. They certainly do. And as we mentioned earlier, reconciliation is, is, is an essential part um, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think it's also an essential part to black justice. It's having a process of reconciliation. Now, that so my, my, one of my main concerns is that the, the racial justice movement, BLM, is not focusing so much on policy. They want to focus on white people taking responsibility for the problems that they face. I am extremely concerned of trying to approach this in, in this way because, and, and again, this isn't all of Black Lives Matter, but there seems to be like a social justice orthodoxy that kind of goes, they're called woke or the intersectional left or cultural Marxism. You know, there's many names people use to describe them, but they're getting it all, all wrong. They want to put two categories of people. You have the oppressed people. Oppressed people happen to be who they call POCs, people of color, so black people, Hispanics. They put women in that category. They put the LGBTQ community in that category. And then, so there's the oppressed people, there's the allies. The allies are people who will just blindly agree with what the oppressed movement says. And then everybody else is deemed as the enemy. So this movement has a very, very strong sense of in-group, out-group, which I think is very, very harmful to any movement. It's harmful to uniting a society. They, and there's this expectation that white people should just do more to elevate black people. The problem with that expectation is most white people are in a state where they, they are having trouble elevating themselves. They are struggling. They have many of the same concerns, concerns socioeconomics, lack of political representation, lack of meaning. And then they hear these other groups of people say, no, but we're oppressed, you're privileged. If you tell somebody who's suffering in life that they're privileged and they owe you something, they're not, they don't become open to your cause. They become closed off. They begin to see you as the other, as the enemy. So I'm, I'm extremely concerned that in trying to achieve racial justice, we are having the reverse effect and we are creating a, a, a greater divide between Americans rather than unifying around our commonality. And there is so much commonality between us. So I would say the, the social justice orthodoxy, which takes up a lot of the voices within the BLM movement, is completely off in their approach. Not only is their approach ineffective, I think their approach is counterproductive. It is taking us backwards um, rather than forwards. It's also they don't accept dialogue. This is one of the biggest issues, right? I just, I just expressed all these concerns. When I try to express these concerns to someone who, who adheres to these ideologies, they will tell me, oh, you, you're just coming from a place of, place of privilege. Oh, you just must be fragile. Oh, you need to listen more. Again, that's not a way, that's not a way to convince people if you're not going to engage them uh, with their concerns. And, and there's a misconception that this is a black narrative against the white narrative. No. There are so many black people, there are so many women, there are so many people from the LGBTQ community that do not agree with this social justice orthodoxy. This is not a, a white versus black issue. There are white people and black people working together 
promoting in orthodoxy. And then there are other people who have not a more uh, hu humanistic view of uniting, not separating. The divide is not black and white like it's being perceived. You can hold either opinion and still support racial justice. Do not let them make it seem like it's either you support us or you are with the racist. It's a false dichotomy. It's inaccurate and it's harmful. Whew. That's my rant on uh, BLM. I hope you, uh, if you guys are into this topic, let me know. It's something I actually want to talk about more because the social justice orthodoxy, I think is, it, it deeply affects me because it's taking up the space of social justice, which I am in that space, but we are so vastly different. And it was born out of the left, but it's not liberal in nature. It's quite authoritarian. So it's, it's more of this authoritarian uh, left-wing ideology that relies heavily on identity, politics, and intersectionality. There are some benefits to those ideals, but by and large, I don't think the ideology is, is, is healthy for people. Whew. Um, any last questions? It's been a little too long. All right, guys, with that, I'm going to run. Uh, it's already 9.45. It's the weekend here in Tel Aviv, so I am excited to get off. But again, I will see you guys on Monday in the next discussion. Love you all from wherever in the world you are.